0: Good afternoon everyone. The Sacramento City Council please come to order with the clerk. Call the roll, please, to establish quorum.
1: Councilmember <laughs> Council Kaplan. Mayor Pro Tem Talamantes. Here. Council Member Valenzuela. Here. Vice Mayor Maple. Here. Councilmember Gatta. Here. Council Member Jennings.
2: Here.
1: Council Member Vang will be absent today. And Mayor Steinberg.
0: I am here. Um Councilmember Valenzuela, would you please lead us in the Land Acknowledgement and the Pledge of Allegiance. I'd
3: be happy to. Please stand, if you are able, Uh, for the opening acknowledgement in honor of Sacramento's indigenous people and tribal lands. To the original people of this land, the Nisenan people, the Southern Maidu, Valley and Plains, Miwok, Putwin-Wintoon peoples, and the people of the Wilton Rancheria, Sacramento's only federally recognized tribe, May we acknowledge and honor the Native people who came before us and still walk beside us today on these ancestral lands by choosing to gather today in the active practice of acknowledgement and appreciation for Sacramento's indigenous people's history, contributions, and lives. Thank you. Now please salute and pledge. I pledge
4: pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible,
3: with liberty and justice for all.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much, council member. Good afternoon uh, to all the members. This is the third of four workshops um, that um, the city manager is, and his team are uh, helping lead, where we have a bit of a tutorial, if you will, um, for all of us and, and for some of the newer members about what every city department does and in some detail. And this is not an idle exercise because we face a a challenging budget over the course of uh, fiscal year 24-25. And this is a foundation by which we can then dive into that discussion and make some of the decisions that we're called upon to make and have to make to ensure a balanced budget. And so uh, this is a bit detailed and um, it takes some hours, but uh, the hours are worth it. And I turn it over to Mr. City Manager, Mr. Assistant City Manager. Okay.
4: Honorable Mayor and Council, Mario Lara, Assistant City Manager, Public Safety. Uh, Today, you will hear from the city leaders who are responsible for the departments that work proactively and reactively to keep the residents of our city safe. As you indicated, Mayor, these will be detailed presentations, so I will keep my introductory remarks brief. However, I would like to emphasize that the public safety leaders who will be presenting today are among the most experienced, qualified, capable, and respected individuals in their field. The first presentation will be on the Office of Emergency Management led by Daniel Bowers. Throughout his career, both in military and local government, Dan has trained for and responded to crises at the tactical, operational, and strategic levels. After nine years active duty service in the United States Marine Corps, Dan continues to serve in the Marine Reserve He has over eight years of experience in local government emergency management. The second presentation will focus on DCR, Department of Community Response, which is led by our newly appointed director, Brian Pedro, who came into this role just a few months ago with extensive program management and leadership experience gleaned from his many years as emergency medical services administrator and division chief. Brian is also a registered nurse and a deputy commander in the United States Air Force. The third presentation will focus on the fire department, headed by Chief Chris Costamagna, who is a 29-year veteran of the department. Chief Costamagna entered the Sacramento Fire Department in 1995 and worked his way through the ranks, serving in almost every unit in the department. Over the span of his career, Chris has responded to some of our nation's most significant disasters, serving in both frontline operations and management positions. Chief Costamania has extensive education and experience in fire fire science administration and leadership. He also graduated from Monterey, California, Naval Postgraduate Executive Leadership Program. And finally, the fourth presentation will be from the police department, led by Chief Kathy Lester. Chief Lester joined the Sacramento Police Department 30 years ago. She started as a dispatcher, was promoted to a community service officer, and then a sworn police officer on, on up through the ranks. Before joining the police department, she served in the US Army where she graduated from the Defense Language Institute from Presidio of Monterey. Chief Lester holds a bachelor's degree in Government and International Relations and a master's degree in Geosciences. She is also a graduate of the Senior Management Institute for Police and the Major Cities Chiefs Association Police Executive Leadership Institute. With that, I will turn it over to Dan Bowers for your
5: first presentation, thank you. Thank you, Mario, Laura. Mr. Mayor, City Council members, Thank you very much uh, for having us present today. My name is Daniel Bowers, your Emergency Management Director, and I have the privilege to discuss what emergency management does here in the city and uh, and how we keep our, our citizens safe. But to start that off, I'm gonna introduce you to our team. And while this is the, uh, the cornerstone core team of emergency management, we are like an accordion. Uh, when it comes to to hazards and we have the ability to expand and contract as needed with personnel and we would not be able to do what we do uh, with just this small team we are integrated into all the city departments and we're able to expand not just with city staff but non-government organizations and many of your staff from your council offices to be as successful as we are so with our core team moving left to right now we have Emily Alexander She manages uh, a few different programs, including our emergency preparedness and also our public information. Richard Axtell, he manages our training and exercise programs. And then myself, uh, the director. Our core mission and capabilities uh, support our mission for the city of Sacramento. And within those core capabilities is planning, preparedness, mitigation, response, and recovery. And we'll dive deeper into those individually, but the Federal Emergency Management System, I'm sorry, Federal Emergency Management Agency has enabled us with a system called the National Incident Management System, which helps guide how we operate and conduct our emergency management program at the local level, integrating with the state and federal government. We also have California regulations but ultimately the the NIMS guidelines help enable us to synergize with other agencies and respond effectively using the same terminology and outlining how we respond to emergencies with the incident command system and other practices. And that has really been the cornerstone of how we conduct a lot of our our operations. And when we get into planning, the guiding document within the Office of Emergency Management is the All-Hazard Emergency Operations Plan. It is updated every several years. It is approved by council. In fact, we've got a draft that's gonna be coming to you shortly here uh, in 2024. And it is the primary source document for how we prepare and respond during crisis. Unlike a lot of plans that are contracted out, the city's all hazards Plan is conducted in-house. I establish a planning team And we go through updates based on latest changes to city government. A lot of innovative uh, technology changes that may have occurred since the last plan. And we update that plan ourselves. And then we push it out through the departments to getting recommendations and edits from them. Ultimately, it's our plan. And it's our plan to use during a disaster. And, And quite frankly, I wouldn't want to hire a contractor to write the plan that I'm supposed to own and execute. Within our emergency preparedness and hazard mitigation, uh, we do extensive outreach to the public. As I mentioned, Emily Alexander oversees this program. And while we've had a good program for years, bringing her on the office last year has really enabled us to get out into the community. We've integrated with your offices at town halls. We've expanded our participation at events. And I think that really is attributed greatly to our double-digit increase during this latest community survey for emergency preparedness. It is a program that Emily has dived into extensively with my support and, uh, and done an extraordinary job. We've also expanded our presence with social media, um, getting alerts and notifications out to the public, much of which have been shared by your offices, and I appreciate that, because ultimately the greater, inf- greater amount of information we can get out to the public to inform before, during, and after an emergency, the better. And through that public outreach, we also hold special events, sometimes solo sometimes in participation with other departments one notable event that we participate in is the high water jamboree mayor if you recall you were at our inaugural event when we did it over at miller park councilwoman uh, i'm sorry with uh, congresswoman matsui uh, providing some great comments out there about the high water marks that uh, that uh, occurred over there in miller park and to celebrate our CRS rating increase. Since that inaugural event six years ago, we've held it every year and expanded it. And uh, it's become the, con- the cornerstone and marquee preparedness event in the region. And that's a, by and large a part thanks to the, you know your offices, the city staff, and all the partners that come out and participate from the local, state, and federal levels. But when we do have an incident that we have to activate and respond for, How we conduct that is by having a tiered level of activation approach. We start out with a duty officer. 365 days, 24 hours a day, there is a duty officer on call that city staff, mutual aid organizations and the community can reach out to for support. We respond to calls for service from city departments for support, mutual aid, and, and in some cases, out to the community to assist uh, when, uh, when there's localized incidents out in the, in the, in the community. If we need to e- escalate that activation, we formulate what's called a crisis action team. This concept's a little novel uh, to the city and novel to local governments. Uh, but what it is, is it is a team that not, isn't necessarily members of the emergency operations team. They're not necessarily certified members of an incident management team, but they're the on-duty commanders from PD, fire, on duty supervisors, from department utilities, public works, the folks that are already on staff. And we come together, we work out a plans, oftentimes leaning back on that National Incident Management System process I was talking about with the Incident Command uh, System uh, program, and we'll activate a response as needed. The benefits of this is we're pulling together the folks that are already on duty without disrupting other staff. We're also keeping the costs commiserate with the response. We've been very effective with the crisis action team so effective that when other agencies are activating their emergency operations center and bringing in a lot of additional staff, we just aren't. Office of Emergency Management is backfilling with a lot of the functional areas that you may see in the EOC, but then relying on a lot of the operational components from the department's on duty staff to do a good response. Ultimately, achieving that unified command, decentralized control. I like to do what's called a term, and I carried this over from my Marine Corps service, is you fight light at the top. A small headquarters party with a lot of field staff, maximizing how how many folks can get out into the community to as much good. I don't need a large headquarters. A lot of those functions I can do myself, and that crisis action team uh, is indicative of that. However, if we do have a catastrophic incident and we do need to activate the Emergency Operations Center, uh, led by Rich to our OEM coordinator, we have a really good roster of experienced key leaders from across the departments that are trained within that incident command system to be able to come together remotely through our virtual capabilities or in person and manage that response. And just to talk through a few of our local responses that we've had over the past few years, the first one I'll talk about, if you can remember that substation fire uh, that occurred and knocked out several blocks downtown with power. And when I received the call uh, about that incident from fire, the concern was that we had to evacuate a couple downtown buildings that were occupied by elderly and folks with access and functional needs. When I got on site, We assessed the situation. We knew we had to get them out. We tried to fix the backup generators and a couple of them we were not able to get up and running. However, a couple we were, thanks to our department of utilities generator techs, which we coordinated and brought in to help. And when we identified that we did need to evacuate these folks, we worked out a hasty plan with just extraordinary (laughs) dynamic decision making by city staff, where our fire service members, went up and expertly evacuated these seniors and folks with access and functional needs straight down to the exits where they were loaded onto regional transit buses, transported over here to City Hall, unloaded, and thanks to the mayor's staff for reaching out and asking if we need anything, which I graciously accepted the help and they arranged for meals, those seniors were unloaded into the City Hall area, processed for accountability, given a hot meal that was provided by the mayor's staff while they waited for transportation to their staff again? <laughs> <laughs> Kelly Revis, to be exact. <laughs> she, she's 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 great, that's yeah. great. And, uh, and they waited for uh, transportation to their hotels. Some of them opted to stay, they wanted to stay close to their homes in case the power came back on and we partnered with the American Red Cross and our community emergency response team you come out and provide that shelter capability, all while a city council meeting was going on. I think, Mayor, you stepped out for a quick uh, uh, press conference and then stepped back into the meeting. But that was just one example of how we all came together and worked very well during a dynamically evolving situation. And not a single person died, luckily, in our city that night, despite that power outage and all those city uh, intersections uncontrolled. A lot of it had to do with how well our Uh, Field staff dynamically responded to a lot of those high-risk intersections and uh, just the overall coordination between our staff. We also, just to speak real quick about a mass care and shelter uh, situation that we had, uh, kind of out of our hands, but uh, during last year's storm, things were kind of tapering off here locally, looking pretty good, but uh, all the routes for a lot of our Greyhound transportation was isolated, going over the mountain to Reno, going up north through the passes in Oregon, and we were building up a pretty significant amount of passengers at a Greyhound station. And uh, ultimately, you were getting into the hundreds of just additional people just stuck there. So we created a hasty shelter site right there. We partnered with the Salvation Army, partnered with Red Cross, and turned that into a large-scale shelter for a couple days until those passes cleared up and we were able to move. Uh, That was very, essentially, a very low-cost response but successful because of OEM's integration with these other government and non-government organizations that we work so closely with. And then the storms last year, Uh, the severe weather that we had most impactful for decades, most that anybody can remember. Uh, We worked very well during that. We activated a crisis action team several days before the storm. And despite the forecast winds not being as high as they ended up being, I do remember we discussed those proactively on that call and we were ready for them. And we closed it off reminiscing that a few years earlier, we had a similar windstorm where the winds were not forecast, but they were very impactful. And I'm just grateful to have such a, a well-prepared team They responded so effectively. And just one other key point of that is, uh, is how well the utilities hosted as the main effort for that response. All the departments came in and supported them. We could have recreated the system with an Emergency Operations Center, But because our city team works so good during emergencies and managing them, we integrated with the Department of Utilities, Operations Center, we had department reps from Emergency Management, Public Works, Fire, all the responding departments, and we ran it out of there, and it was very cost effective, commiserate with the response. And just to highlight the initiative that our staff takes in dedication managing emergencies, during a couple forecasted events that were supposed to be a little bit more impactful than they were. There was some calm times, and instead of sitting back in the vehicles waiting for a response call, our city staff from the Department of Public Works, utilities, and OEM took the initiative to get out and start recovering during the response phase, which is uncharacteristic of a lot of jurisdictions. And I'm very proud of that, because that helped us get back on our feet quicker and also mitigate follow-on storm effects. Now I've mentioned a couple of them, but these are just a few of our allied response and recovery agencies that we rely so heavily on great partners and, uh, and, and always willing to, to come out and support us. You think of a lot of times when you think of mutual aid, you know, the normal ones come to mind. You've got Cal OES, you've got, uh, our county OES partners, but a lot of times it's the non-government organizations that are so quick to respond. The American red cross has been extraordinary partners. Team Rubicon, they sent out dozens of trained sawyers last year during the storm. One of the key elements of our response last year were those sawyer teams that came out and responded and worked through several weeks with us. They were also ready to come out this past weekend. We just didn't need it. The storm effects weren't uh, what uh, what would require myself to bring in mutual aid, so we didn't use them. And uh, and I also didn't want to over over request. That's another thing with uh, with resources like that, you go into these emergencies, you go into these events, and we saw it across the state, there were a lot of jurisdictions that were far worse hit than us. And so you don't wanna over request the resources, and so I left them on the table so that they might be able to get deployed to a uh, a place that needed them greater than we did. Uh, The Department of Homeland Security, we work very closely with as well. They've been exceptional, especially with our resiliency and redundancy that we're trying to build into our critical infrastructure. We work very closely with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI partners, as we have growing threats with cyber and uh, especially with threats to our critical infrastructure. We've spent an entire generation of automating our systems. However, within that, there can also be great vulnerability. And so we work with them to maintain the curve and stay ahead of threats uh, with that so that we can reduce our vulnerability, especially with our critical infrastructure. With that, thank you very much, and I'm open to any questions or comments. All right, thank you so much, Mr.
0: Barris. I mean, I've uh, known you since the very beginning of uh, my mayorship, and so glad we have you at the City of Sacramento. Um, I mean, in times of some of the most memorable, not always for great reasons, uh, moments in Sacramento, um, what you have done in collaboration with police and fire departments and the entire city team has been outstanding and um, it's why the city has uh, responded so positively in part to some of the natural disasters we've had in this community so thank you yep Howard
6: thank you mayor I want to echo your comments here you know Daniel's got a small but mighty team here Uh, obviously he has the resources uh, through police and fire and utilities and public works but you know, whenever we have, you know, uh, a critical incident happen, uh, Daniel and the team's already exercised it. They, they already have anticipated, they have like 19 different options that he'll call me and say, so what do you want to do? Uh, I, I'm confident that, you know, for all eventualities, they're, they're uh, fully prepared, and we should be uh, grateful to have this team in play, even though it's a small team, uh, and there's no one better than the leader than Daniel. So thank you, Daniel. you, yes, sir.
0: Okay, Council, do we have public testimony, Madam Clerk?
1: So, it, I know, again. for our past department workshops, we waited till the end. We'll so wait to we the end. Okay. So, yeah, that's right. Council, Council, Council Member
0: it? Valenzuela, then, yes.
3: Yeah, thank you um, for the stories and for the work you've done, not just in my district, but around the city. Um, been interacting interacted with you a lot at the beginning, less so recently, which is good. You're one of those folks that I'm glad I don't have to interact with when because that means things aren't going wrong. Um, how do you, so? do all of the cities in our region have an OES like this, or is this something that's unique in Sacramento?
5: So generally large cities have their own standalone emergency management team. We're, for comparable cities, we're probably about, staffed about a third or so uh, compared. When you look into some of the other smaller jurisdictions, they might have one. A lot of times it also holds uh, office in, in a fire or police you know, service. And then uh, at the county level across California, they all have what's called operational areas and their standalone OESs. But a few of those also might rely in, uh, in, in their sheriff's office, and uh, I would say the, fire the department yeah. yeah, the closest city that has their own emergency manager that is not a sworn member of uh, the fire police service is Elk Grove. And then when you get over to a uh, you know, place like San Jose, you know, they've got 12, 15 staff members, and then you know, of course, the other large cities have it as well. Okay.
3: So, in the other cities in our county besides Elk Grove, the county is sort of the OES for them. Exactly. Okay. And yep. how do you, what is your how do you interact with the county OES? Because I imagine they get different resources yeah. similar to most of the things yep. the city does compared to us.
5: No, great, great question. So they manage the cities that are within the county to the sense that they help coordinate resources. For example, regional transit can't go everywhere if we're all pulling on them. They'll coordinate that as a uh, as like a single as a single uh, entity there at the county, and I will request resources from them if they're in a limited capacity. Otherwise, it just makes it very difficult for those limited resources to get pulled, and ultimately with them having the situational awareness of the whole county, they can push those resources to where they're most critically needed. Uh, You know, a couple days ago during the storm, I reached out and made the request to the county to utilize our emergency alert system. And uh, I was driving through downtown, and I was noticing a lot of streetlights out, especially up by Del Paso, uh, in, you know, clearing, clearing tree limbs, but also noticing a lot of those uh, streetlights out. So I reached out to my county OES partner and said, hey, this is what I'm seeing out here. I'd, really get a light. I'd like to get an emergency alert out. I could send the alert out myself, but if there'd have some bleed over, then other jurisdictions might, what would be great is if the county could just send out one alert across uh, all of our jurisdictions. They quickly responded that they're hearing a couple of the, those same types of comments from other cities. And so they sent that alert out very quick. So we, we work together very well. Uh, and I uh, spent some good time out there at the county EOC at McClellan. Uh, but, um, you know, o- ultimately, I, I think uh, we tried to do, uh, you know, years past. I think it was about 10, 12 years ago, sir, correct me if I'm wrong. It was a combined city-county OES team, and it just didn't work. And so they they broke it apart. You know, my office for a little while fell uh, in the police department uh, realm. I think there was a lieutenant that was overseeing it. That didn't work. So then Howard, about six years ago, broke that uh, away, formulated an office in in the city manager's office, and and brought me on board. And that's been, in my opinion, the way to do it. It's great. that South San Jose does it. And when I say I've got three core members, it really expands my capability because... City manager's office has staff that has just been phenomenal with grants, with administration, with day-to-day that's really supported and bolstered us. It's a good place for us.
3: That was my other question was um, if you could break down, because I imagine a lot of what you end up doing is reimbursable, like how much general fund money you pull for your services, like if you had like a ratio versus how much you're able to get FEMA reimbursement or other reimbursement.
5: There are some programs like emergency management uh, grants that uh, that we can pull from. Right now, my three staff are general funded. Uh, I w- can say that uh, our operating budget, pretty low, uh, has never, uh, we've never exceeded it. We've always always given money back and, uh, and, and I've never asked for more money, so it's <laughs> just kind of a good thing, right? Uh, and, and for example, last year's storm, the coordination that my office did bringing in the non-government organizations, which is a reimbursable expense in its own, but that amounted to almost a million dollars worth of total costs that we brought in that was not a, uh, a monetary cost to the city. Ultimately, we paid for my entire budget uh, just with the resources we brought in okay. uh, last year. So we look for ways to give you a really good bang for the buck.
3: Thank you.
0: All right, thank you, Council Member. Let's turn it over to the Vice Mayor, Katie thank you, Mayor.
7: Mayor, appreciate it, and uh, thank you so much for the presentation. Um, I I have to say I I first met you before I was even elected just you're out in the community your team's out in the community um, And I think you probably have one of the most versatile you know departments or um, Offices in that you're really connecting with everything whether it be homelessness Obviously the weather events that are happening making sure that we have a coordinated response So I really appreciate that and I know how important it is and one of the things I wanted to ask you about is I mean, obviously, we're already seeing the impacts of climate change and how, you know, storms are becoming more, like, increasingly powerful, and, um, and we have to grapple with that as a city, as a region, and I just wanted to get your thoughts on what does that look like for you in the coming years, you know, in terms of staffing, in terms of resources and other things you might need.
5: Well, a lot of the integration that we've been doing over the past couple of years is with agencies that, you know, a lot of the Department of Water Resources uh, up and down the riverways and looking at ways that we can, you know, expand on uh, some of the problems that we're seeing with the drought, but then also balancing that with the, you know, just things like salmon, right? Salmon, I mean, the water temperatures are getting so warm, but, and we're losing, and we're, you know, potentially gonna lose fish. So it's it's just a, you know, it's a very good balance that we all have to work together so that we we manage we manage the resources that we have, but we don't we don't put ourselves in a compromising position, you know. And it's um, I I think one example that that we looked at last year was the reservoirs were so low, which was a good thing for us during the storms, but a bad thing during day to day. So it's almost like bouncing from one crisis to another. We either have too much water, we have too little water, and you know. It, Last year, we were getting uh, contacted by organizations over in, in Nevada on how to help prepare them for storms and stuff because they've had you know some issues with water retention up in the Sierras uh, to prevent and uh, you know going dry over on that side. But then, what happens when you get too much water? And a lot of it's driven by that inconsistency that we've experienced over this past decade. So uh, it's probably not the best answer, but it's such a big balance between. Not being too dry, but not being too wet, you know. And, and we're seeing that, that whip whipsawing around these last few years. That uh, you know, hats off to a lot of our you know, uh, land reclamation folks and DWR and balancing that, uh, you know, t- to keep our water levels where they need to be without overholding water and, and and creating floods down here, having to release.
1: Yeah, thank you,
6: Vice Mayor. If I would add on to what Daniel had to say, a good way to look at this is that when you look at. Cal OES and the county OES, uh, they, they are responsible for the, the overarching um, emergency response for the entire region. When we created OEM and we had our portion in the fire department, it, I think it was just, uh, just icing on the cake. We got a lot more attention. We leverage uh, uh, very few FTEs. All the um, the reimbursements we get through police, fire, public works, utilities, and city staff, that all gets paid back to us. But... Daniel's like a master of figuring out how to leverage all those reimbursements and grants So I think it's less of a how many more staff or how much uh, how many more resources you need uh, more than it is do we have enough resources that we can put at an emergency that we can get reimbursed for because we're We're going to utilize the staff that we have already and so we've been we've been working uh, many years on this
7: That's really helpful, and I know also I you know not to like add a wrench in there, but isn't there also or hasn't there historically been some challenges with getting some of that funding back like through FEMA, for example, we had to wait I think a pretty pretty long time to get some of those
6: yeah that was part more. of uh, part of the covid response and we're mm-hmm. still grappling with that you know the uh, the home key and things like that but yes
7: the 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 bureaucracy of government, but thank you for for all you do to um, to navigate through that and to make sure that we're safe as a community and I just wanted to bring up one one example that I recall. Um, it was probably a couple years ago with then, then Council Member um, Angelique Gashby, and you know it was flooding in the river and we literally had you and others in our fire department, our police department and out in a storm evacuating people um, who were camping along the river and that's just one small example of the work that happens all the time just to make sure folks are safe so I just really appreciate what you do. Thank you.
5: Yeah, definitely and, and to your point about the FEMA issue, uh, you're absolutely right. In fact, that was such a problem that when I hired my last coordinator, we stole him from FEMA. So it was kind of like an ace in the hole with how to navigate it. And Rich has been great tying in with, with Pete from finance and, and the recovery team and helping us navigate that. And we're starting to see checks already flowing in from last year's storm, which is great to see. So, Thank you. Councilmember Jennings. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for the
8: presentation. And um, I want to thank your team, if they're here today. I don't know if they're
5: here Uh, Emily just welcomed a a young son, so she's on maternity leave, and I think Rich might be out still dealing with the storm.
8: Please extend our congratulations to her and also um, to the entire team, because you are small, but you are mighty, and so you get a lot done. Um, I, I just had a couple questions. You gave an excellent presentation. I think it answered most of the things. But you mentioned about the plan being updated every seven years, and we're about to see a new plan coming in 2024? Yes, sir needs to be updated. Is there something that we need to do as council members
5: or as a city in order to help with the updating of that plan? I think the the last cycle that we did, we we met with you and your staffs individually, kind of covered the plan, covered changes from the previous edition. The last one needed a lot of work, uh, especially when it came to some technology and access and functional needs components. I think we'll probably just play play that very similar where we'll meet. We'll kind of go over it. Uh, you can take a look at, it, see if there's any recommendations, and then really after that, council member, the only thing we need is just council approval on the plan, approve it, signature by the city manager, and we're we're back in business. Is there a reason that it's every seven
8: years, as opposed to uh, you know, with climate change and everything that's happening, that it's not more frequent?
5: It, it's not necessarily, ne- and I should have corrected that earlier. It, there isn't a, a necessarily seven years. They, FEMA likes to see it updated about every five years or so. Uh, you can update it more frequently if you want. Uh, I think because it, we do it in-house and, uh, it, and it's a draw, I make edits to it, honestly, several times a year as I, as I look at after actions from events, things like that, stuff I do differently. But a lot of the core components of it don't change. A lot of it is checklists and, and things like that for folks who are working in different positions. Uh, but, uh, but if the council would like it more, updated more frequently, there's nothing stopping us from doing that. We could do that. That's great. Last
8: question is on um, <clears throat> the crisis action team as they respond to uh, severe weather um, and the storms last um, last winter, great job. And then we just had some storms over this past weekend. And I was just wondering, did that, did that come up to um, something that affected your office as
5: far as the storms that we had this past weekend? It, it did in the, uh, in the duty officer level, Council Member. So when I, when I look at the atmospherics, uh, the, the general climate of, uh, of where we're at and the positioning of, uh, of resources, that all plays into the level of response for the city that I will, will either direct or make requests to the city manager for. And it just didn't escalate up to a position where we needed to formulate the crisis action team as we saw through the storm, it ended up being a lot milder, especially here. Uh, I anticipated that, granted last year, uh, some of my concerns and the reason I, I activated a, a greater posture was a lot of our trees were just sitting in mud this time last year, you know, when those major storms hit around New Year's. Right now our ground is saturated, but it's not as saturated. Uh, and so just looking at a lot of, uh, again, that the atmospherics, that plays uh, pretty significantly in, in how I make those assessments for our uh, our citywide posture. Okay. So I think that was my
8: final question for you. Um, The high water jamboree was a huge success. Um, People like it a lot. I think it's a way of educating more of the public about your department and what you do. Um, Is that something
5: that we should be doing on a more frequent basis or are we already doing it enough? Well, it is a big draw from resources. We bring out local, state, federal partners, uh, Army Corps of Engineers, FEMA. Uh, everybody comes out for it. I think getting them out more than once a year might be kind of tough. Uh, the benefit of that and when it occurs, and I remember you coming out to it uh, uh, the year before last uh, when we did it uh, down in Garsha Bend. Uh, the benefit of doing that is we kick off California Department of Water Resources Flood Preparedness Week. And so it really gets that draw from all those other organizations and agencies involved in that uh, to help us advertise and promote that event. We have considered doing something uh, in working with our fire partners, maybe something that kicks off fire season, maybe in like late spring, early summer. Uh, that has been a consideration. I'm totally open to it. It's a little bit different audience and a different group of uh, resources. Not completely, but, but it might be, you know, some different budget pots that we could tap into. Uh, but overall, you're, you're right, it, it is a, a very fun event. So, um, and we, we get new partners every year. I think this year, uh, when we when we, uh, we couldn't get our, uh, our sac PD bird up for it uh, we were able to bring in a National Guard blackhawk which you know kind of works like it does in uh, you know it worked in real life just like it's supposed to you know when you request those resources if you're short on something so well
8: we liked it in uh, Garsha Bend Park and we, we don't necessarily want to go on the other side of town in order to go <laughs> right. to it but that's, that, but but yeah <laughs> But if, we, if, if that's what we have to do in order to continue yeah. to go there and get, ed, get the education that we, that we need, we will do that.
5: We have tried to move it around. You're, you're right. We did it in Miller Park. We did Garcha Bend, went up to Natomas this past year. So we try to spread the love around the city, uh, make it easier for folks to stop by. But you're right. If, if we did have a, you know, two or three emergency preparedness events a year, we could definitely uh, increase our, our, our geographic print. So Thank you, sir.
7: Great news, and we'll see you in South Sacramento soon. Uh, Mayor Pro Tem Talavantes,
9: <laughs> Councilmember Jennings, you and I—wonderful uh, uh, comments, <laughs> partially. Um, <laughs> uh, Daniel, thank you and your team for helping keep Sacramento safe. Uh, thank you for keeping our community safe. I know a lot of the departments that we're going to be hearing from—it's going to be a common theme. Uh, so, just to everybody in the audience, thank you for joining us on this very important conversation. You know, as we're hitting a budget deficit, public safety is and continues to be Sacramento's number one priority. Um, I also just wanna say incredible success on the high water jamboree. Um, so fun to have all our city departments out there and all our like partners to come out and do that emergency preparedness and to get people excited about it. Um, I took my nephew and my niece and now my nephew thinks that he can get into any helicopter Um, any plane and any tractor or any bus (laughs) that he sees on the streets after attending the event. And so it was just adorable and it was such a good time. So hope to continue it in Natomas, maybe do two, one on the south end and one on the north end. So thank you.
5: Yep.
9: Anything else from my colleagues? All right. Thank you,
7: Mr. Bowers.
5: Excellent. Well, I will turn it over to uh, Brian Pedro from Department of Community Response. Thank you. Wonderful.
7: Mr. Pedro, welcome.
10: All right, let's keep this party going. All right, Uh, Vice Mayor, Council, City Manager, uh, I am your uh, new director for the Department of Community Response, and uh, this is actually your department, Uh, Mayor and Council directed our city manager to um, create an alternative response uh, department, and, and here we are. Uh, today you're going to hear from two other departments, our fire department, which will uh, discuss their 100 plus years of service. Uh, you also hear from the police department, which will be celebrating 175 years of service. And I'm going to speak to you about uh, what we've accomplished as we celebrate our two years, seven months, and six days of service. Uh, This was a headline on August 31st, 2021, and uh, they were not kidding. (laughs) Um, July 1st, 2021, DCR opened its doors. Uh, This department was originally tasked to relieve the 911 system of calls related to people experiencing homelessness and or behavioral health crisis or concerns. Uh, Though we have slightly pivoted uh, from our initial mission, we actively continue to study alternative response models, and how we can be ready for a shift. <clears throat> uh, our mission statement remains the same, uh, even though we have this slight uh, pivot, and our uh, vision truly is what we do daily. Our department is made up of three offices. We have the uh, Office of Homeless Services, which uh, manages our service programs and contracts with uh, six FTEs. Our uh, Office of Community Outreach, offering outreach services, uh, also part of the uh, Incident Management Team outreach, and we also manage some of the uh, service contracts, such as uh, Roseville Road. And we have 25 FTEs. In that office. And then we also have the Office of the Director with six FTEs, and uh, we provide the strategic planning, uh, maintain budget and fiscal accountability, and then we have the human resources function, uh, such as uh, recruitment and onboarding. All right. And the DCR is also tasked with leading our incident management team by providing. Uh, planning, operations, logistics, and uh, overall response functions of outreach, compliance, and encampment management and cleanup. Um, I'll discuss each department further and explain the services that uh, we provide. So first, I will start with our Office of uh, Outreach and our outreach superheroes. Uh, most of them have their degrees in social worker counseling and several are currently attending Uh, or completing a master's degree or in a program. Uh, Some have vast experience serving our homeless population, and some are new, but all are here to help make a difference. Uh, Ben Worrell, who's not in the picture because he was taking the picture, uh, is our program manager that leads the uh, office's uh, daily operations. Quickly, as a side note, so our outreach workers, uh, official title are Neighborhood Resources Coordinators, also known as NRCs. Uh, Here's a a list of a few things that they uh, do out in the field and the services they provide, but uh, every day, rain, wind, sun, or heat, uh, they're out in the streets, alleys, canals, under bridges, or by the river trying to make connections. Uh, There are many services they can provide from a simple conversation to a vulnerability assessment, from crisis management to real-time referral to our OEC or the Roseville Road. They truly are our frontline workers. This job is not without difficulties. I can tell you that uh, that this work is equal to the emotional stress and trauma of any first responder. And I know our staff can and do suffer from the same PTS symptoms, depressions, anxiety, and other that other frontline workers uh, experience. Uh, much of this is from that mentality of, uh, uh, I could have done more. Uh, this is why I'm currently talking with uh, police, fire, and HR, and looking at available programs for the mental health and well-being of our staff. <clears throat> the Office of uh, Community Outreach is also involved in our, uh, as part of our incident management team. Uh, we have uh, program specialists uh, from DCR working with um, the uh, Sacramento Police Department, uh, code and uh, parks, and also from fire prepping and planning for uh, support and operations through our, C- our, our using our 3 one system. Uh, it's a true interdepartmental force. Um, This is our small but mighty team that uh, managers and ministers our contracts uh, for much of our needed shelters that get our homeless uh, community into a more stable and better environment. We have 30 programs and contracts uh, and 18 shelters. Uh, We have continuous communication with each site uh, and monitor that uh, the case management behavioral health services are being provided and uh, We also monitor the positive exit rates with the goal of getting people ready to move on to live independently and with more permanent, supportive, or full service partnerships. These cannot be accomplished without the support and collaboration of using our external services. (laughs) Looking at our uh, shelter site demographics, uh, we're constantly monitoring how long people are staying in our shelters, the, uh, Graph on the left, uh, we are beginning to increase our efforts to provide more intensive case management to reduce the number of days in a shelter. Uh, And then as you can see by the graph on the right, uh, we're also trying to better match the services provided to the client population. Uh, As you can see the percentage totals some are represented in multiple categories. Uh, Sacramento County is uh, providing behavioral health services. We have community health works that is uh, providing the lead for uh, complex mental and physical health care and case workers and navigators provided by the operators of the shelters and our coordinated access. continue on with our uh, demographics. Uh, again, we're trying to match our shelters to our uh, client's age and, ge- and gender. Uh, In a couple of slides it'll show you how we are reaching that goal. Continuing on with our demographics. uh, Lastly, we're looking at diversity and equity of our programs to match our community needs. Uh, Black and African Americans uh, make up about 32% of our homeless population with about 42% represented in our shelters. Uh, Whites making up about 45% of our homeless population with 24% represented in our shelters. Uh, We have Hispanics that uh, make up 25% of our homeless population with about uh, 10%. If you uh, are counting the white Hispanic represented, Uh, if you add that with the Hispanics, then it's almost 12%. Um, We have American Indian, Indian, Indigenous, and Asian, and Asian Americans at about 1.5% representing our shelters. And the uh, uh, Native Hawaiian Pacific Islanders are less than one percent here's how we fared in uh, fiscal year 2023 Uh, a positive so we have uh, 18 shelters we sheltered 4,380 people Um, we have uh, 1,350 beds and then 41% positive exit Um, A positive exit is an exit from a shelter which is not a return to unsheltered homelessness uh, or the street but rather an improved environment. Uh, This would be an example of going from a street to safe ground, safe ground to a shelter. Uh, Shelter to a family or friends is also a positive exit. And then of course shelter to permanent housing. Looking at the types of shelters that we have available, we have the uh, concrete shelters, which are the uh, large open rooms with uh, multiple bunks or cots in the uh, open space. We have our transitional age use shelters, which are uh, acronym of Tay Shelters. So these serve those 18 to 24 years old. Uh, we have Waking the Village. It's a home with private rooms for parenting or pregnant women. We have the Wind uh, Youth Services, uh, which is a uh, dorm-like environment with a strong emphasis on employment training. Uh, It's a 30-day program, uh, but they're looking at changing the model a little bit so that uh, besides the uh, training programs that uh, we're looking at uh, getting uh, better positive exits out of that uh, site. Uh, we have the SEC uh, LGBT, which has two prog- programs. They have their emergency shelter, and then sa- they also have their uh, center for uh, transitional housing. And then we have the Grove with the emergency bridge housing, which is the tiny cabins with uh, rapid rehousing. Uh, also offering life counseling and case management and other services. And then we have our women and family shelters. Uh, St. John's program for real change, serves uh, Sacramento's most vulnerable women. Uh, women struggling with homelessness in combination with other challenges uh, like poverty, substance use disorder, mental health, violence, and abuse. Uh, The WEAVE program uh, also promotes uh, safe and healthy relationships and supports survivors of sexual assault, domestic violence, and sex trafficking. As we move on we have also our city motel program. Uh, City motel program we have six motels throughout the city uh, 200 motel rooms with a total of 550 beds uh, to shelter families experiencing homelessness. And these programs also provide support services and case management. We have our Outreach and Engagement Center. It's our emergency shelter and also the uh, Respite Center. It's a 23-hour stay. Uh, it can expand out to uh, 100 beds during uh, respite uh, weather respite. And it also provides services in case management. And then we have our Roseville Road Campus, which was previously our Miller Park. Uh, Miller Park having had the tents and trailers, we now have uh, the Roseville Road offering pallet homes and trailers with the maximum bed capacity of 240. Uh, The site has plum showers, a large covered and enclosed area for gathering. Uh, We have case management uh, provided, behavioral health services provided by the county and there's uh, medical care uh, also provided on site. Uh, we're currently working toward uh, electrification of the facilities and uh, this site was put up in what I would call record time uh, with the help of, uh, of all of our city services. Uh, we had fire prevention involved, we had uh, the uh, Community Department of Development that helped file our exemption, we had the city attorney's office helped with the legal advice, we had uh, public works delivering Uh, delivered on the project with uh, fleet moving trailers, streets grading lots, and uh, facilities uh, renovating the location. Uh, True true effort by all of our departments. Uh, This is who we are helping here. Um, So we have uh, uh, Jennifer on the left. Um, When Outreach made contact initially with Jennifer, she was living in her vehicle with her mother, her daughter, and pregnant at the time. Um, she, she and her family are now in a downtown uh, project-based housing in downtown Sacramento and, uh, and thriving. Uh, on the right, we have uh, Mario that was initially in his uh, tent and wheelchair. Uh, we have him now in uh, Ranch Cordova. Uh, he has a service dog and he has a motorized scooter that allows him to get around. Um, I think that these are some of the important stories that we need to show because uh, we're constantly hearing about the people that we aren't housing, but I can tell you there's many more stories like this that are out there and uh, this is something that we should be proud of. All right, so. This is a, a little uh, education on how we get from the street uh, to shelter and housing. And it is a, a complicated process, to say the least, but we'll make it uh, as simple as I can. It's, I'm not going to get into all the details, but uh, we'll uh, we'll try and do a uh, quick review of this. So a simplistic version is a uh, if someone accepts services, and we have our access, the number one there, uh, that can be provided either by our outreach teams making contact with them and uh, putting their information into the HMI system and getting them a referral, or it can also be in the, uh, they can contact the two one 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 system and also get placed into the coordinated access system and put on the wait list. Uh, this initial survey takes about 20 to 30 minutes. Uh, from there, if we uh, if we have space available, we can put you in one of our safe stay sites, uh, the OEC, uh, or a shelter. But uh, shelters, I can tell you, there is about a, an average of about a twenty five day wait time to get into a shelter currently. <clears throat> um, at this point, you will be assigned a case manager to help you with the process and uh, try and get you. Uh, ready to move on through the system. Uh, In step three, depending on how you're prioritized by a um, vulnerability uh, scoring system, uh, you can be referred to other resources or put on the list for housing. Uh, At this point, hopefully you're likely in some type of shelter, working with a case manager that is helping you get all vital documents, uh, documentation, and trying to get you matched up to a program such as a PSH transitional housing or some type of FSP. Uh, Referral and placement is where it takes many roads and it is dependent on your vulnerability. If a PSH case manager uh, pleads your case during case conferencing and you're actually, uh, such a high priority that you actually get into the uh, PSH program. Um, Rapid rehousing. uh, is also an option that provides the rental payments for a set time frame, And then uh, also we have uh, SHRA that provides uh, vouchers through a voucher system uh, that can match you with the program, uh, either a, a tenant-based uh, program or a, project si- a project-based site. And uh, this can take anywhere from weeks to months to years to get you into that system. Uh, We'll switch gears a little bit and go to our uh, office of the director, and um, this office is uh, responsible for strategic planning, uh, physical planning, budget auditing, human resources, administrative management, and then, of course, keeping my uh, schedule full. Um, As a director, it is my responsibility to set priorities, use all resources available, whether internal or external, uh, create efficiencies, provide effective operations, keep our mission and goals in the forefront, use metrics and other measures to ensure we are meeting our objectives and strategically planning for the future. Uh, This consists of looking at the original goal of DCR, how to provide an alternative response uh, that uh, relieved the 911 calls and what alternative response models look like uh, based on our city's needs, resources, and funding. So we're currently working with the fire department to um, provide a paramedic and a DCR NRC uh, worker and looking at a substance overdose uh, response team model that would provide counseling treatment for opioid addiction and providing overdose kits. Uh, I'm also looking at, uh, and uh, I don't want anybody to, City manager, I don't want to get worried that we're promising anything. I'm just saying that I'm looking as the director of all possibilities of alternative response. Uh, We have, uh, I'm looking at behavior and medical health models, uh, looking at social workers and nurse practitioners providing both behavioral health and medical responses. Uh, Also, fire department, don't get worried. We're not taking uh, any of your job away from you. Uh, With the, uh, working with the police department, actually currently on a protocol for uh, patrol to better respond to um, people experiencing homelessness and better communicating and integrating with the incident management team. Um, when looking at uh, alternative response, I'm constantly looking at how to create a self-sustainable uh, response model. Is there a service that matches our city's need? And is, is this a billable service? Is it easy to, it's easy to create a program. The difficulty is making it sustainable. How do we perform better as a a system? Not just internally, but externally? Create more efficiencies and improve our current metrics? Are we looking at the correct measure for success? And what does success look like? Uh, Looking at the system level, working regionally, we're uh, currently on the Regional Coordinated Homeless Action Plan, and we work weekly, and sometimes daily with our Sac County partners with the partnership agreement. Uh, We work with Coordinated Access and our continuum of care. And our service partners uh, reaching out to our uh, external vendors for collaboration opportunities, such as uh, looking to our hospitals or our veteran services. Um, And then of course, we're uh, constantly receiving feedback, uh, collaborating, educating with our community groups, our PBIDs and other partners, uh, getting our message out and communicating as much as possible. And then of course, uh, the IMT, and is a, a strategic plan within itself. It has an opera- operational time period that helps uh, force that continuous effort. Uh, again, asking the same questions, how can we be more effective? How to make uh, processes more efficient? Can we provide a different approach in our services? Uh, and of course, with the objective of being outreach compliance and camp management and cleanup. I think this is a a, a great picture to show uh, all the people that are involved in the incident management team and this is not all encompassing. Uh, To ensure public health and safety by providing an interdepartmental response to lessen the adverse impact of city encampments by offering outreach, ensuring compliance with city and state codes and maintaining site sanitation. That was the purpose of the incident management team and we are working on that every day. Um, I call this the IMT balance so we are responsible to all citizens in the city and all citizens are responsible to abide by the laws and ordinances of our city and state. Uh, We're not going to make everyone happy with the decisions we make but (coughs) compliance and encampment management is part of a well-rounded approach and as you will see on the next slide the number uh, the numbers show the need. I just want it to be said that the IMT does not move someone unless outreach has been offered multiple times. Unless if the case of it is critical infrastructure, 500 feet from a school, or it's a safety concern. Here's what our numbers look like for uh, it was, this was only through August of December of 2023 Uh, 20,000, and this is just rapid response team. So 20,000 calls received. We responded to 7,619 unique addresses. uh, And 95% of the time, voluntary action was achieved. uh, And then as you can see on the right there, 10 million, almost 11 million pounds of trash was removed uh, from our city streets. So to, uh, I I looked this up to help everybody get this in perspective, 10 million pounds, actually I did not. Someone looked it up for me, I will not lie. (laughs) But to get to an idea of what almost 11 million pounds of trash is equivalent to is 41 blue whales or 10 Boeing 747 jumbo jets. All right, so uh, let's uh, review what uh, we have in the incident management team. So we have our general response. And um, we'll have to look at this team in, in three, three different buckets because we have three responses. So our general response are outreach workers uh, going to small and large encampments throughout the city, uh, trying to connect people and offering services. We, in this group of uh, general response, we're working side by side with our county behavioral health heart team, uh, Hope Cooperative Outreach, and then our community health uh, works workers uh, trying to make those connections. So this is a separate deployment outside of our rapid and coordinated. This is strictly that response, that general response that is out all over the city providing that. And this is what their efforts have uh, have shown us in, uh, again, from August to December of 2023. So they made 4,171 unique uh, individual contacts providing almost 50,000 services. Moving on to the the rapid response team. So these are, uh, they provide outreach compliance and cleanup. These are our small teams that are deployed throughout the city. Uh, to work with our smaller encampments and try to uh, get our encampments to success. The makeup of these, our standard makeup is uh, one NRC uh, from DCR and two impact officers. Uh, We also have rapid response teams for the park. And then we have some embedded code officers that are also uh, running along with us. And of course, forensic clean to help us with cleanup. Uh, the uh, coordinated responses, these are for our larger encampments. Uh, they uh, are pulling multiple rapid teams together and some of our other partners. Uh, these teams are running simultaneously with our rapids, so we have rapid teams out there running and then we have our larger coordinateds doing coordinated responses as well. And uh, the large encampments that uh, our coordinators are going on are those encampments that have had weeks to months of outreach efforts and uh, they have been exhausted, and now we're uh, going in with the teams. Uh, most of these are usually uh, clean due to excessive storage blocking sidewalks, and then the health and safety concerns. So the efforts here are shown is the uh, rapid response team, in that we are still uh, in that team, though we're doing lighter touches with our outreach. We're still. Uh, making contact with over a 1,000 unique individuals and provided uh, over 4,600 services. Um, And then the right shows you all unique individuals that we've had in contact uh, in the six month period and all the services provided from all teams. Uh, The IMT, the incident management team, spends about 25 to 30% of our time supporting uh, Our uh, DOU, RD1000, SAFCA and um, American River flood control maintaining our waterways and critical infrastructure. um, Keeping our homeless safe from uh, rapid water rise during storms and clearing debris to allow for proper runoff and drainage for our canals. Uh, As you can see the pictures here, the top picture is uh, that waterway before we got some of our recent rain. Uh, The encampments there were uh, heavily provided outreach uh, we went out there several times provide outreach with the final time of moving them strictly for the safety because of we of knowing the storms that were coming in and as you can see the bottom picture there uh, that where those encampments were are is underwater uh, we also support uh, work with um, RT and the um, Union Pacific for safety concerns around the railroad tracks, and our light rails, and uh, as a reminder, there is no camping in our parks. So here's our partners. Um, So much of what we do uh, is not core city services and not the original alternative 911 intent when DCR was launched. And we rely heavily on collaboration with partners and their services to help our our homeless communities, uh, city and county behavioral health, uh, hope cooperative outreach and behavioral health teams, uh, community health works, um, and uh, collaborative provide collaborative outreach. Uh, they have a comprehensive care management uh, component and then they provide um, uh, community support as well. Um, also, up here, we have uh, the um, the LHAP, which is our local homeless action plan that we're currently working on to uh, make it a regional uh, coordinated action plan. We have uh, the city county partnership agreement. We work with the coordinated access. Uh, that's uh, aimed at ensuring people needing services have a streamlined clear path to uh, access the right help. Um, we also um, work with the um, Uh, SSF, SACS Step Forward, it's a lead agency that administers the Homeless Management Information System. Uh, We have our Continuum of Care, which is the lead agency to receive U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development funding uh, and undertaking planning. We work with SHRA, uh, WellSpace, uh, providing um, our uh, Crisis uh, Receiving Center. They also manage the uh, 988 system and uh, We have many other community-based organizations that we would not be able to provide these services without their help. Uh, Looking at uh, personnel for our department alone, so DCR is a small department. We have less than 1% of the city's authorized FTEs. uh, That um, according to page 206 on the city's approval budget for uh, FY23-24, we were approved for 37 FTEs. Uh, We currently are filled with 27, it's a 27% uh, vacancy rate. And uh, one of our individuals is retiring March 1st. That will uh, bring us down to 26 and a 30% vacancy rate. Um, We are leveraging uh, use of our partnerships with um, Sac County and other uh, nonprofit partners to fill these positions. And then we are also uh, currently doing the paperwork to fill some of our key positions. All right, looking at our budget and the break out to uh, from the request of everybody to know where our funding's coming from. Uh, the uh, top funding there is our department which is uh, uh, Measure U funded. Uh, as you can see, we have uh, operating costs of 5.4 million for our 37 FTS, and then we have 12.5 in projects. <clears throat> uh, The bottom is our total funding because our projected funding needs are about 45 million. Um, And the breakdown on that is uh, Measure U, supported by, uh, we're in HAP4 funding currently. Uh, And then we have some residual funding from uh, ARPA, uh, Whole Person Care, and a few others, just from being diligent with the funding and making that stretch. We're currently applying, uh, for HAP 5 funding, um, completing the regional coordinated uh, homeless action plan, we can get that application in and we'll be working on HAP 5 funding. And that'll get us through another year. Uh, lastly, here's a little breakout uh, just to uh, show you that 75% of DCR's project funding are from external one time. Uh, or short term funding. And with that, I thank you for your time and your attention.
7: Thank uh, you. We appreciate you sense. and um, you've done some really excellent work in a relatively short amount of time. Um, really grateful for taking the time to to give us a thorough overview of what of what your department does and your team. Um, and with that I will pass it over to my colleague, Councilmember Guerra.
11: Thank you very much, Vice Mayor. Uh, appreciate the time, uh, Assistant Fire Chief Pedro. I, I, first of all, I just I just want to thank you for stepping into a role and really thinking through and using your um, expertise in uh, organizational management and also your your uh, your background in uh, in the health field to look at this as a as not only. You know, an issue of public safety, but also an issue of public health and how we address this. So, I and I think that's uh, one. Uh, say that you know, uh, give you a lot of thanks and credit for that, but also to thank your, as you mentioned earlier, your superheroes. You know, of of, of the team that uh, um, who uh, um, who I had an opportunity to go out and do the point in time count with uh, as well. And um, it was it, it to me, it it uh, it just showed how much. Um, you know, compassion, how much forethought also was was brought by the staff, uh, understanding the, the need to, you know, again, have that balance of public safety, but also public health. And when we were doing the point in time count, also being available and ready to provide those resources and uh, help folks who who didn't know where to go and uh, be able to get them directed to a place so that they could move out. And I think that story was very well documented by um, Capital Public Radio and uh, Solving Sacramento's edition. And I, and I think your team there, you know, I, I think showed a good example of the, the actual um, in-depth work that goes into this. It isn't just people just showing up or no one caring or no one responding. There's a lot more involved in that. Um, and second, I also appreciate the, the, the work in, in strengthening and helping us refine um, the city and county uh, partnership. And I've, I've been fortunate to be in those four-by-two meetings to ask those critical questions on how do we strengthen, how do we make the effectiveness of of this partnership uh, execute better and more. And I see, we, I, we, I see that happening with these larger encampments, how we're able to not only... Um, provide relief for the community where they're at, but also ensuring that we're signing up as many people as we can into these programs. There's still obviously a lot more work to do in getting people signed up for the full service partnership. And that's something that I think the mayor will, will will spend his time chatting about Um, or not, not, you know, (laughs) but uh, um, and, uh, and then the development of the IMT, the rapid response piece, you know, um, and being able to, okay, as, we're, as we have the city and county partnership working on the more complex um, locations, being able to provide a response to immediate issues next to a, a child care center, next to a library, next to places where we need you know, immediate responses as well. And I appreciate the success of the IMT. There, there is one area of concern, and as we move through with budget discussions, and this is probably also for the following council meetings when we come, we we respond to. how 311, our, our IT and our communications protocols work, but you know the the thing that that uh, that some con- that many of our, my constituents find very frustrating, and I found myself since I use 311 very regularly. We've encouraged and we've focused on uh, having folks call 311 so that your team can triage these calls and better assess these calls. Uh, but the the response back and and think rethinking how. Or thinking through how three one one responds back um, uh, needs to, I think, needs to have a better uh, sense to constituents when an issue is resolved. Many times they'll get a ticket back saying that the case was closed, uh, yet they see their window out their window, and they may see the that an issue still exists. And you know, it may be illegal dumping, a vehicle, or something else. But in this case, I'll just only focus on the call for services um, when we would need the IMT um, out in response. Um, and, then, and then I don't know if it's been corrected in the past and that doesn't we don't need to go into detail on that, but when five people have called on a particular location that needs assistance, four of those tickets are closed and only one is kept open, but the only thing that the other... Four that are closed get a response is that this case has been closed versus has this case been consolidated or has there been an outreach to another? So in other words, giving an assurance of when when something will occur. And so I worry about uh, when we look at these, uh, uh, when we go through our budget conversation and the time for service and the time for response, how do we do a better job of communicating with the public on the efforts that your team is doing uh, as well and you have an entire outreach component to that. So let me stop there and maybe give you some opportunity to, to respond to that because there's a lot wrapped in that.
10: Yes, um, so um, first of all, thank you and I appreciate you going out and uh, on the pit and uh, appreciating the work that our teams do out there um, because it is a tough job to do every day um, and I'm glad that you got to see a piece of that. Um, the 311, we have been working really hard with 311 um, with Ivan and also with um, Darren and IT to fix exactly what you're talking about. Um, they're, and, and we're really making a lot of groundwork on this so that they get, uh, the 311 caller gets better feedback, exactly what you're talking about. I can tell you in the past, some of the problems with those calls is that someone will put in a 311 call for um, uh, garbage in the area. And it will be, or they'll put in under garbage, but it will be for a person experiencing homelessness. And we'll go there and no one will be there. And so they'll close the tag out that doesn't help with the feedback and that's exactly what we've changed on that. So we've created uh, a menu that our, our individuals can select so that there is a template that they can add to that there is some feedback that is sent back to that um, caller. We've also had to have the uh, work with how to close out if 10 people call for the same location, it's it would be easy to close nine of them out and then respond to one person but there's 10 people that are expecting a callback. So now we have to take each call and respond to 10 calls and that's part of on our side trying to automate it and make it easier for our people to be able to respond to those 10 calls that were all for the same location in an easier manner and um, we've, we've made a lot of groundwork on it and we're still making more improvements on it. So I think you will see a noticeable difference.
11: Uh, Very good. I I appreciate that. And I think that, you know, the, the, the important part of that outreach with the community and working with them on, um, on how to be able to one, reduce that frustration and, and also give people the ability to have trust in reporting and, and helping guide the city, because many times I think what what I found is is um, you know obviously folks will email their council member as they should. That's why we have districts and representative government. Uh, but it doesn't help with what you've uh, uh, you, the structure that you've created that helps triage priorities, right? Um, and so, in order to keep that system, I think, um, and, and 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 better analyze it from a city standpoint um, and triage priorities. Um, the public has to have confidence in being able to call into a particular location and knowing that their their request is going to be managed um, appropriately so um the you know the the last piece i'll i'll 'll bring up is um you know the you know your budget on may uh, is is a uh, for a big chunk measure you funded you know there there are a number of options that are um uh, that are one time dollars and and we see um You know, we see the uh, the state also beginning to claw back some of that those dollars. Now, immediately when I saw the 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 governor, you know, mention these comments, I reached out to the mayor and said, "Hey, do you got any insight on on this?" But um, have you had any any uh, indication at all on some of the um, hap funding and maybe uh, getting a sense on kind of some of the funds that we have been getting from the state? on what this next year looks like and, and our ability to manage those um, non-City funds uh, as well while we're managing a compression in our own general fund.
7: I think Mr. City so, Manager, do you want to respond?
6: Yeah, I, uh, so we are working on our HAP-5 application, as uh, Brian was talking about. We've heard thus far that uh, our allocation is going to increase from the previous year at somewhere in the $27 million range. So I think next year we're going to be good. Uh, but as the mayor puts it it's one year at a time in perpetuity hopefully
0: well yeah maybe if I may on this one um, the the big city mayors of which I'm one the former former chair um, and the governor um, closely collaborate on homeless issues and um, we have been steadfast supporters of his approaches, and he's been very supportive of us, as has the legislature, because he recognizes I think I'm not speaking for him that cities are not health and human service agencies. We don't have mental health budgets. We don't have substance abuse budgets. And yet, we have an enormous responsibility here to try to clean our city and help as many people as we can. And so, <clears throat> there's never um, a for sure thing in life, and certainly not in politics and, and budgets. But I'm telling you, I'm I'm very hopeful, if not confident, that uh, we are going to get another tranche of ha- funding this next year, and not have to cut back. In addition, I should say, we are um, applicants and going to really go after it here for. Uh, another slice of last year's state budget, which is—I may have the term wrong—but the encampment engagement grant, which is which could be up to, you know, double double digits in the millions, um, to be able to expand expand some of our work, albeit one time. But as I said, you know, really one-time funding. Let's be honest: one-time funding consecutively two, three, four, five years becomes ongoing funding you just have to fight for it every year and this problem is not going away it's not going away for every major city in the state um, nor for the governor and the legislature and it's a priority for them and it's a priority for us so I think we're going to get our money and if we compete well with that grant we could get additional money which might allow us to expand our newly opened uh, facility out on Roseville road or to engage in other investments that's all on top of the 350 tiny homes that are still coming um, and the two sites that have been identified so it's it's for a deficit budget with the state and here it's not so bad we're going to get we're going to keep going and maybe expand
11: thank you city manager and mayor that that was uh, the point i was getting there's a lot of concern you know from folks about well how is this this part of the budget uh, going to be um, impacted when we have these other cost pressures. And um, what's, uh, you know, uh, what's, in, uh, I think, hopeful is that if we are successful in the um, encampment engagement grants, that we'll have a faster response time from that service. So those are, those are the hopeful thoughts. Well, thank you, Vice Mayor, and, uh, and I appreciate the, uh, the responses there.
7: Thank you, Councilmember. And I'll just chime in really quickly to say it. one of the one of the many tangible benefits of having a mayor that has the the, the relationships that you have at the state level. Um, it's not lost on me, and probably not on my colleagues, how our city benefits greatly from those relationships, especially as it relates to homelessness. So, thank you. All right. Next up, I have Councilmember Kaplan. Thank you, Vice Mayor.
12: Uh, thank you, Brian, for all that you do, especially. Um, those who haven't met you, you know, maybe listening. I, I think what needs to be really called out is you are extremely compassionate. I have seen you numerous times out talking to our homeless, whether people are acknowledging that or not. Um, on your own time, I see you out there talking to individuals and trying to find a way. Um, as we deal with a with an issue that we haven't found an answer to yet but I see you leading with compassion. Um, and I think that's a mantra that we as the city are, are trying to lead with. And so I wanna thank you for that because I do see that. And I wanna thank my colleague for asking a lot of the budget stuff so I can move those questions um, <laughs> out of the way. But two things that you hit on. Um, when we look at, I mean, just what? From August to December, 54,189 needles found. That's not little. That's a lot. That's 54,000 needles. Um, And we have the fentanyl crisis that is expanding. And I know that's something we have to look at as a city, but I am also wondering um, what are we doing and what are we looking at, not just responding to them, but also potentially working with Um, our local school districts, the county offices of education um, because this really is also an educational piece uh, that a lot of our young kids who may be willing to uh, experiment, this is deadly and it's a conversation that is happening more in our schools but I think we can't take this as silo. so I don't know what thoughts or things you've been looking into in that regard.
10: So on on our side we've been, uh, because that Opioid funding went out to the county as well. And so I know on the county side, they're working on a lot of projects that uh, more what you're talking about on our side that we're looking at the response side of it of getting out in the streets and uh, getting kits out or treatment out in the streets. Um, But it, it, I mean, that it is looking, it is being looked at at all directions um, because it is a crisis.
12: And so are you seeing that more? Are we hearing more of our shelters talk about this as well? Or do our shelters have, uh, you know, overdose kits?
10: No, but I see that as the direction that we would go if uh, once we get this going, up and going, because it's, it's, I mean, it's open to anybody. We'll be everywhere.
12: Um, And then you you said a couple of my favorite words that I would love to say, um, go forth. Uh, You do have uh, my support. You looked at alternative response with our unhoused. And I have talked about this with those in the fire department and the police department. Um, Specifically as we look at how do we address our our unhoused and where, you know, our fire, they they created single roles, so they now have, you know, more paramedics and ambulances, Mm -hmm. but If they are constantly, that is the first response and they are showing up, Um, and it's also who can they transport, who agrees to be transported, um, but also taking away from our community public safety. What about if everybody's out and somebody has a heart attack, or I always get notices where ambulances end up on our schools. You know, if everybody is being pulled away um, just because the unhoused need is not going away, that is um, something we have to address. And honestly, our officers did not become police officers to be the front line in always addressing the unhoused. I want to also uplift our officers in knowing that they actually chose to become officers to serve our community. And just as your statistics showed that 69% of those who are dealing with this, it is increasing the anxiety and I would love to see, as DCR was intended, kind of like that alternative response model because as we know, we have vacancies in our police department. We know our firefighters are working a lot of mandatory overtime. How do we look at responding to our unhoused differently that has more of a uh, trained humane element um, I'm on board. Whatever best practices there's a lot of stuff out there. I know Denver's doing a lot of uh, interesting things, um, but that is a direction I'd like to see um, our city start moving towards. So whatever you guys think, you have my
7: support. Go forth and conquer on that. <laughs> Mr. City Manager, your response?
6: Just very quickly to, to add on to that and to respond, actually, is that uh, as we come through with our proposed budget over the next several months here, you're going to hear about the status of this alternative response and DCR uh, standing up uh, as we intended, uh, as uh, we've discussed many times in open session here and even in some closed sessions, uh, about what uh, what that looks like, what that transition looks like. And uh, it is, uh, we're at a point now where we can have that discussion about keeping these, you saw some vacancies kept open. We wanna make sure that those vacancies align with this, uh, the original intent of DCR. And so the pivot here is, with IMT being stood up the way it is, we now have a little buffer that we can start looking at what what that could be, and then we will be coming back to this council with more information on that, as I said, during the budget process.
12: Thank you, City Manager. I I really think that is the direction and the right way to go for the city, and and seeing us move towards that, you know, it's never fast enough, but uh, to the extent, and I know how hard you're working, and how many directions you're being pulled, so thank you for coordinating everyone.
7: All right, thank you. Mayor Pro Tem Talamantes.
9: Thank you. Uh, to anyone watching this, uh, please understand the city of Sacramento is spending $42 million on homelessness. And all things Department of Community Response. And that number is projected to grow every single year. And so of that $42 million, about $11 million is coming from our general fund. Um, we're not a health and human services agency. And the county of Sacramento is. And a lot of times I think what gets lost in the conversations just in the media or just in the community or even within our conversations with the county is the fact that the city of Sacramento is in the county and we vote for county supervisors just like we vote for city council members. And so the city is in the county so we need to continue to really just work on that partnership with the county on this issue and just thank you mayor for appointing me on that four by two this year uh, just because homelessness has impacted my district so much and i'm thankful to be in these conversations and to figure out how we're going to continue addressing this issue um, and you know all this work that we're doing doesn't fall within the framework of what the city of sacramento does like our essential uh, core functions critical infrastructure land use fire police parks water tree canopies um, but we're going to continue to do the work Uh, because we're facing a humanitarian homeless crisis and we know this issue is important to the community and it is to us as a council um, as council members as the mayor so um city manager just i know there's been some confusion in the budget in regards to this number so i would like for you to clarify the 56 million budget dollar deficit does not any does not include any funds that are related to homelessness
13: correct
6: right so we're projecting a deficit for fy25 north of 50 million dollars that number will get refined later this month but, yeah, we're, we're not in, uh, there's a separate line item for all things homelessness, both on the revenue side and the expense side. So, you're correct. It's, uh, that, that deficit does not include any potential deficits we would have under homelessness should the state funding not materialize.
9: Okay. So, okay. Just wanted to make sure it was on the back there. was some confusion. So, $56 million does not include anything related to homelessness. Okay. Thank you.
7: All right. Council Member Valenzuela.
3: Thank you, and um, thank you, Councilmember Kaplan, for bringing up the alternative response models. I mean, that's been something that we've talked about on this dais multiple times. There's been proposals some of us has put forward at different budget years to say, hey, let's try it. And so I'm really excited to hear that research has continued and that we're getting closer to actually standing that up. Because, yeah, I mean, when I hear from officers in my district that 90% of their time is spent on calls related to homelessness or mental illness, I'm like, that that's not right um that's not what they signed up for and that's not really frankly i think what's going to serve our city the best in the long run um so i'm really excited to hear that's moving forward and i want to thank you brian for i mean you've only been in this department for a couple months Six months. Yeah. <laughs> no. it seems like about three <laughs> and, years,
10: but six months. Yeah, it feels
3: longer. <laughs> I'm sure, but um, I want to thank you for how much detail you put into this and the breakdown. You're the first department to break down like budget spending and where it comes from and one time versus outside money, and so I just really want to thank you for doing that. And I've done three point in time counts now in the last two. I've done as a council member with your staff in the River District, um, and so I just want to say first off how amazing it is to witness when you call them superheroes. Like, absolutely. I mean, not just the way they approach people, but the relationships. They have very clearly built. It takes a couple couple people, like, maybe less than a minute to be like, oh, wait, I know you. Okay, let's let's talk. Um, And that was just really cool to witness. But you can also appreciate the toll that that takes on them. And so I just want to thank you for paying attention to the wellness of those staff because a lot of them do the work because they really care about what they're doing. And it's hard to see people continuing to struggle and not being able to give them all the options you want and I really want to point out this demographics chart because it just it has to be said um, well, first of all, when I was out in the River District, I noticed when I actually slept the next day and, like, got some rest um, that almost every single person we interviewed was black. Like, almost every single person we talked to identified as black, which was incredible to me. And then when I see these numbers, that 42% of the population we're serving is black, that's more than three times the city population of people who identify as African-American and black. I mean, that is an incredible disparity that is, last, that is showing up at this end of the spectrum, which is really, really... I mean, I just incredible is the word that comes up to mind, but I just wanted to point that out because I think those numbers persisting really show the lack of effective upstream interventions that we're dealing with, whether it's an education opportunity, whether it's in criminal justice interventions. You know, what are those tools that we're not quite using to correct those disparities? Um, I really love the stories you share. I wish we shared more of them. Um, You know, I've come across a couple of really good stories in my district of people that I thought would never get off the street who one day were gone and an outreach worker just happens to say, oh yeah, they're staying at the Central Sacramento Studios now. We finally got them in and I'm like, oh, I wish we said that more because people lose so much hope and I have to remind them that we do get people off the street every day. We're just not keeping up with the demand that's growing and we need to do more to move upstream. Um, But I also want to, I think there's a real misperception in the community about people not wanting Services and I noticed that in your presentation too. you said services Um, I think I'd really appreciate a breakout of what those services are that we're offering them because I think a lot of people assume that services are shelter um, And that's not usually what we're able to offer people Um, And so I think breaking that down and helping the public understand How often we're offering shelter versus maybe a different service so that when they still see that encampment down the street They know that it wasn't necessarily because that person said no to shelter It was usually because they said no to I don't need my ID check I don't need the wait list check, I'm already on everything leave me alone, right? Um, and in general, the idea of wait lists. I've asked the county for this. I don't know if we'll ever get it, so I'll ask you for this for the city. You've included some numbers and presentations about how many people you've enrolled on wait lists, and I think that number would be really helpful for us to know because those are folks who've already said yes who are just waiting for the spot to open because I think what we're stuck in right now and part of the futility that your staff might be feeling, I won't speak for them, is that really what we're doing right now is largely moving people back and forth across the city and because we don't have the options available for them and so I really do want to us to own a little bit the side of this that either us or the county like we need way more places for people to go Um, and until we get that faster response is great, especially when there's a crisis going on and there's needles out or there's somebody next to a school, but if they don't have a place to go, like my my district is growing increasingly frustrated that they're starting to realize that camps are moving a couple blocks away and then they're coming back and then they move a couple blocks away and every time the city spends resources doing that, they're saying, Wait, what are we doing? We're not solving the problem because, you know, we're triaging the problem but we're not really helping that person get off the street, which is ideally the outcome that we'd like to see as often as possible. So I'd like us to tell that story a little bit more. Not not so much like in sort of owning the responsibility to, to the Mayor Pro Temp's point, but just saying this is how many people we've enrolled in wait lists in the last six months. You know, like these are how many people are ready for drug treatment. These are how many people are ready for mental health treatment so that we can start telling that story too so that people understand where the block in the system exists. And I did want to ask you a question in my final set a little bit here. Um, so I'm starting to hear more and more from folks that we're not giving notice to people when we ask them to move. And obviously I appreciate that there are urgent situations like if someone's blocking a driveway to a fire department, right? You know, we need to come out right now and say, no, no, you can't be here because you're impeding an urgent safety issue. But more and more I'm starting to see stories in the press and stories from people in my district that people are being moved sometimes with less than an hour notice. And so I just hope, Maybe if you, or I don't know if that's a better city attorney question, could explain a little bit about what's going on with that. Because I know that's that's caused a lot of upset with constituents in my district who are worried that people don't have time to move before their possessions get taken. So um, could you answer that part?
10: Yes, and, and I will gladly answer that question because I, I can tell you with high, high confidence that, Nobody is getting moved without having had some outreach and services offered to them. Now, when when you see somebody, and 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 put in a, a ticket or someone wants them moved, and we go out there and provide some services, and you don't see that interaction, and then you come home, and the the, the then you see that we didn't do anything and then you come back and they're gone, then we swept them. But I can tell you with confidence that we are providing outreach to everybody that we make contact with and we are not moving anybody short of critical infrastructure, 500 feet of schools or some kind of safety. We There is nobody that is getting moved without some service being provided first and it is just, false information that's being put out there.
3: I appreciate you clarifying that, because when we were out in the River District for the point-in-time count, um, there were a lot of encampments blocking the sidewalk on 12th, um, which I'm sure you're familiar with very well, and I noticed that they all had notices that had been dated for several days prior, so I knew we were still doing that piece, but I was troubled when I saw media reporting that we weren't doing that anymore, so I did want to give you the opportunity to clarify what was going on. So, okay, thank, you. so thank you for um, saying that, and again, I'll just end by saying that you know I think we have an amazing team here, colleagues, and I hope that all of us who've interacted with them would agree that they're making a lot work with very few resources, and I just want to reiterate that what I think they need are more places for people to go. And and what that looks like, um, I just want to keep that on our frame because they're doing the best they can. I think Roseville Road, I think, is full, last I heard already. So it's like, how do we, you know, give them those opportunities and keep those new projects in the pipeline? I don't know, Mr. City Manager, if that's something. I know with the safe ground authorization, you said once that fills up, maybe we'd look for another site, so.
6: Yeah, so so two things. Uh, You know, I too have gotten lots of emails, probably all the ones you all have received regarding media and, and whatnot. Uh, it's just patently false, and in fact, I will copy you on a response that I provided to the, those that are on the four by two. That refutes everything that's put out there. So I appreciate you asking the question publicly because uh, we are not perfect. Uh, we do our very best with limited resources to try and provide help for people, uh, but we're also trying to balance the, the issue of keeping our, our uh, doing the clean and safe, with keeping the sidewalks clear, and schools and, and the whatnot. With regard to opening up additional sites, that, that's going to be part of a discussion we have. Is, uh, Part of budget, you know, and the council priorities. What, what is it that we want to do? Uh, once we get done with all these presentations, uh, it w- uh, right now I don't know what these service level reductions look like or uh, budget reductions. They have not been presented to me yet. I have all the departments formulating their plans to me for review. I will compile those and, and make some recommendations to this council uh, at, based on you know things I've heard from you all. Uh, and be clear, you all can take a look at the recommendations and say. Thank you, Mr. City Manager. We want to do something completely different. Uh, and I will give you the ability to take a look at those things we've considered uh, over these next few months here. Um, and, but one of them is this idea of expanding more shelter on top of the Roseville Road location. So it is going to be a very interesting discussion, uh, challenging, but uh, you know, good news is some of the state money, thanks to the mayors coming in at a greater clip than we had last year. Uh, so, you know, keeping the shelter beds we have open right now uh, seems like it's going to be fine. We still have to submit our application and the whatnot, but uh, uh, it's it's all the other things that we're going to be talking about towards budget, and some of the questions that came up here, uh, we can delve into more as we have those budget presentations.
7: Mr. City Manager, and thank you, Council Member, and then I am uh, fully aware that we too, we have two more long presentations before us, so I'll keep my comments really brief before I pass it over to the Mayor. Um, and a lot of what I was going to say has been said, so I, I won't reiterate, but I did want to bring up a couple well one I will reiterate one thing which I appreciate Councilman Valenzuela about uh, which is telling our story Uh, I think that's really important Um, we're starting to do that I'd love to see us do that some more the stories of the people that we're helping um, that our teams are helping I think that that does a lot to empower the community to understand the work that's happening but also um, see that there is progress it is uh, it's slow. It's not easy work, um, but you, you and your team, you're out there every single day. Um, and I've been on ride-alongs with the city county teams, with DCR, and I know how much uh, your your team really cares about people and making and trying to solve the problem. Which also brings you to the mental health point. I really appreciate you as a leader thinking about that for your team. Truly, um, it is. It's hard work out, out in the front lines, and so. Uh, and I also wanted to say congratulations and kudos on the Roseville Road. Uh, I think that was a perfect example of if we can make the process a little less political and we can work together, we can get something stood up quickly uh, that can serve the needs of the community. And while it might not be perfect for everyone, there is no perfect solution in terms of a location or services provided. I thought that this was a wonderful example to show the community like we can do this, we can work together, and we can do it quickly. So I just really wanted to commend you, your team, City Manager's office, and this council uh, for making that happen. Um, And then just one last example that I think is, uh, was big for me in my district, in my community. As you know, I was sitting up at this dais probably a few months ago, uh, very upset over the WX shelter and the encampment that was out there for a very long time. And Um, you know let my frustrations be known and you know within a matter of days if not weeks uh, you sprung into action with your team um, and the new the very new at the time IMT team it was one of the very first places that you went and I can say um, that the community is really grateful uh, and that the shelter staff is really grateful they're they're feeling more able to to do the work that they're doing every day because they don't have a literal you know drug dealing operation outside of their doors um, that's preventing people from getting the help that they need and so on and so just really wanted to appreciate you and uh, and I hope that we go forth and ch- share our stories more so with that I will pass it over to the mayor
0: thank you very much uh, vice mayor uh, conferring with uh, the city manager and with apologies to the police department uh, and and the men and women are sitting in the audience I think you know we have a closed session at four uh, session at five I think we will put off the police department presentation so that we're not rushing through it. Um, And I I think even though it's inconvenient, we apologize. I think it'll be better so that we can have a full discussion with the police departments. That's all right, without objection. So on this item, I mean, I know in a week or two, we're going to have a full presentation on uh, the status of the partnership agreement where these same issues are going to be discussed. So I'll try to be brief here and save some of it for maybe introduce a few thoughts and in and, and preparation for a, a week or two. First of all, I know the, the Racial Equity Committee talked a lot last week about the need for some kind of interim racial equity lens for uh, considering this budget and the impacts that we make. Oh, my God, if there was ever a better example of why that's important, Valenzuela reciting what you presented, uh, Brian, that 42 percent of the population can or African-Americans, I mean, we either consider that in making our budget decisions or we don't. And if we don't, then we're not applying a racial equity lens. I'm not saying it's the only thing, but it needs to be part of the consideration. Um, Again, this is teeing up for a couple of weeks maybe, but Brian, when you say that we never move anybody unless we have done outreach I think the question that bears more discussion is what does that outreach consist of? Is it a light pass, a medium pass? Is it an actual offer of of housing and or shelter? Um, Do we provide the navigation for people to move their stuff and store their stuff or whatever to be able to get them there? That that question I think is really uh, paramount in terms of how we define outreach and and having a discussion with the community especially some of our critics with some common understanding of what is actually happening out there. I want to say and I should have said this from the very beginning. um, We have a foundation now in the city of Sacramento to um, do better much better in part because of what the manager and I might have had a little push here too over the last couple of years to say we need an incident command structure, similar to what Daniel Bowers does, right? But in this context, treat this like an emergency. And now we have the structure to be able to do that. And um, with, with, with DCR has fabulous personnel, but I think it takes somebody of your um, background and skill set and various levels of experience to kind of lead this. And so it gives me confidence that we have that we now have the foundation for the right kind of outreach. And we know it is a tremendous work in progress with a long way to go. So plant a, planting a couple of, of seeds here. Um, one of the discussions we must have, privately and publicly, is the expectations that we give to our neighborhoods and communities about when they are going to see relief. And we've talked about this before. There's two sides to this equation. One is the rapid response, which is 211, 311 generated um, mostly, based on the heat map and all that. But there's another half of it. And that's what we're going to discuss in two weeks the partnership agreement, where the multidisciplinary teams, as you described them, go on out. Um, strategically to the encampments that um, are, are the largest and some of the most serious encampments to try to do the full on intervention to try to get people out into some kind of a better setting and what I don't think we are doing and I'm going to continue to urge that we consider doing it is to actually put out a timeline so to speak and have every asterisk you want on it saying that it's tentative and that it could change because we don't want to be held to something that you know we may not always be able to live by because of exigent circumstances but to tell the people for example in North Sacramento the area that I now represent as a city council member when the bikeway is going to get the attention that It so desperately needs and deserves. I've said it many times. People can be disappointed in knowing we're not going to get to X for four weeks or six weeks or eight weeks. Disappointed. But they will be okay if they know we're going to get there. And we're not doing, we're not being as transparent, in my view, or as public as we can and should on this question. And I understand there's some countervailing considerations. Setting uh, false expectations, which is why I say draw your asterisks around it. Um, the idea that, well, maybe you're gonna have, we're going to face demonstrations of some kind or, or something, which is always, I get all that. I think we are paying a tremendous price in terms of confidence by making this too much of a inside game. It's not a game. And I think you're doing a tremendous job and your team are doing a tremendous job. I think the foundation is being laid, but that piece of it, I feel strongly about um, because the public deserves to know when they are going to get some relief. So I wanna put that out there. The other thing that we need to talk about in a couple of weeks is how this partnership, and by the way, doing that will also hone our performance even better than it is now because it will require us to be thinking two, three weeks ahead about which city county teams we're going to be deploying and and with what intensity, because there's still a lot of questions about the sec- the, the other half of the non-rapid response piece of this. Part of it is the constraint that we don't have additional beds, right? And so <laughs> there's the backup, and where are you navigating people to, and yet, we know that there, you know, if it takes 25 days to get somebody into a, a vacant bed because there is some turnover, well, <clears throat> then let, let's take that 25 days, back it up, and see how many people we can get in by focusing on some of the most serious, serious encampments while we are adding to, to our beds, which begs one last question for consideration in a couple of weeks. The manager and you guys have gotten mixed messages from us, and so let's acknowledge that. Not in the way you think about enforcement versus non, but whether or not a safe ground has to include the full panoply of services that we want to provide people. But if we don't have the money, if we don't have the money, should we be designating places in the city where people can camp without the full array of services? Um, as a way to differentiate very clearly, and this debate about sweeps or whatever people call it, to differentiate between where people can, in fact, live in a tent in the city and where they can't. We haven't done that, really. I mean, um, because everything we do comes with a multi-million-dollar contract. <laughs> and, but it begs the question, whether or not in terms of trying to address the cleanliness, the safety, and also the dignity of people to know that, that they can stay where they're at while we try to get them into housing, that there's a place where they can camp. I know this is being roundly debated in the community, in the mayor's race, in all of it. But it's at least worth talking about and considering as part of our clean and safe effort. Finally, then it's over. Um, you know, I do think who made the comment, Councilmember Talamantes, I think, earlier. Don't expect any um pats on the back for anything. However, I'm gonna say it till the end of my term. This city has put more resource attention and commitment to homelessness than at any time in its history. And <clears throat> It's hard to prove a negative. But if you listen to the Sacramento Steps Forward, who tells us that we've gotten tens of thousands of people off the streets since 2017, and we acknowledge that the problem has gotten worse, and who knows what the point in time count is going to say come June, what does that tell everybody who thinks about this and has a say in this? This is about systemic poverty. It's about people who are not making it. And yes, there are a lot of people with mental health and substance abuse issues and underlying conditions. And yes, there are some people that choose this as a lifestyle and all of that. But how is it that we get so many thousands of people off the streets and yet the problem grows worse? Let's make sure we're talking about that. And so that and we're recognizing our limitations but also what more we can do to try to provide relief to the people suffering, but also the people in our community who are suffering. Look forward to more in two weeks or a week, whenever it is. Thanks.
7: Well said, Mayor. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Pedro. Thank you. All right. Up next. Hello, Chief. Welcome. Welcome.
14: Good afternoon, vice mayor, mayor, and members of the council. I'm Chris Costamagna. I'm your fire chief, and I'm going to walk you through our department a little bit this afternoon. We listened to a lot already this afternoon. Um, and I, I was sitting there thinking about how it was going to open. Not that I haven't been thinking about this for months, but I'll say this. We are not a small department. We're a big department, but we're decentralized. We're in the communities. Um, we're there for rapid response, and we are your Swiss Army knife when it comes to when things go wrong, we're, we're there all the time, and we're always ready. I'd like to take a moment um, to thank the folks in the audience. Uh, these are the division managers who make this department run every day. Um, the folks that can't be here are the firefighters that are in the community working right now, and I'll talk a little bit about that for a second. This weekend was a busy weekend. It was shaping up like last year's New Year's Eve storm. On Saturday, we had a pretty horrific fire. We were really busy. We were spread thin. You're going to hear me say that more than once. Uh, but our members took the time, um, they listened to the radio, and they reacted to a fire that could have had um, two more fatalities than it did because they're just listening to the radio and they got in the right position. And that's what they do on a daily basis. With that that day, um, typically a day in Sacramento is 300, on average, 300 calls a day for service for the fire department. That day had 455 calls for service. So when I say we're spread thin, it just brings a little bit of a, a picture into mind. And I'll show you a little bit more here with some lots of charts and graphs, Mr. Mayor, for you. I know you like the charts and graphs. So, um, as we look at it, this is how we break down. We have Deputy Chief Mike Taylor with his assistant chiefs, Pat Costamania, you might recognize that name, Josh Callista, Chief, Deputy Chief Danciart in charge of technical services. His, his assistant chiefs are Scott Williams and Jacob Pelk. Deputy Chief Tilden Billiter with risk reduction, and his assistant chiefs are Kim Iannucci, Dave Sharon, and Jason Lee. We also have um, Anna Turin, who's the fire admin manager, and hers, her divisions are fiscal and HR internal to the fire department. The Sacramento Fire Department administrative team combined brings you 341 years of experience. I think that's important to note. These are very experienced people leading the department right now. They prop me up every day. Uh, So if there's a question to answer, they've got it behind me when we get to the answers. Office of the Fire Chief. We talked about it. It's oversight. You've heard the other department heads talk about how they give oversight and direction. That's what I'm here to do. I have the divisions behind me running the day-to-day. I can only provide the oversight, the direction, and the management of the divisions. We consist of eight divisions and four battalions. There's three platoons where you'll hear us refer to them as shifts. A lot of the time there's 178 people on shift every day in the city. We're here 24-7. We're we are unlike other departments where we're here 24-7, 365. Most people are here for a minimum of 48 hours. Most of them work more than 48 hours with their commitments. And that's the, something to just talk about the de- department really quick. This is a committed department. There's a lot of sacrifice that the firefighters and the people behind me give every day. We're all here for you to sacrifice in ways that some people don't understand. I, I think something else i will talk about real quickly is there, there is no demographic for us to answer to. We answer every call. There is no barrier for the fire department. And I'm gonna get into the calls in a little bit. We offer service in 146 square miles. We're larger than the city. And why is that? We have contract areas, one that's just a little over a square mile, another one that's over 45 square miles. That provides a greater service to our city as well. Uh, Those two contracted areas are uh, North Natomas and the Pacific Fruit Ridge area. They've been combined over the years. And there's been a lot of uh, combinations of fire departments in the Sacramento County region Over many years. The department is comprised of 24 stations, 34 fire companies, engines or trucks that we refer to them them as. The fire department staff is made up of 647 sworn members and 58 administrative professionals. Our professional staff, and you saw slides from the other departments, manages 196 multi-year contracts worth $52.3 million. They also manage five urban urban search and rescue grants, totaling $7 million. And another um, five grants that that equal the $7.5 million, 10 grants in total. Our total budget is near $192 million. And as you can see, 89% of the funding that the department receives goes towards those core services, the priorities of the city. And I can point back to just about every priority in the city, whether it be the unhoused, protecting the shelter that we do have, and obviously public safety. And I'll talk about that a lot in this. Moving on. the core services of the eight divisions, the fire department does collect 31.8 million, excuse me, $31 million through its EMS services. Another $4.1 million through its fire prevention division and its offsets.
3: I'm sorry, Chief, Could I ask a question just while you're on that slide? Yeah. How much of that 31 million, like what's the percentage of EMS costs that that covers? Is that
14: like I'm assuming the, the money that, that, that we bill out and receive back and offset goes back directly to EMS services. Okay. Does that
3: answer? So would you say all of the EMS is covered by reimbursements? Okay. Thank you.
14: Yeah. I, t- I started with a little history. I'll give you a little more history. Um, on the left, you see a fire that started in 1852. I tease the police department that it started in the stable. That's not accurate. that in their stable. That's not accurate it actually started in a millinery, a hat shop, it Burned the city down. Um, 30 days later, the city was rebuilt. 762 structures were rebuilt in less than 30 days. So this city uh, is much like a phoenix rises from its ashes. After the devastating fires, when the fire department was organized in 1850, it became a paid professional fire department in 1872. We celebrated our uh, 150th anniversary two years ago. The department itself is actually 174 years old when you take in its volunteer service and its paid service. This department has continually evolved to meet our community's needs and today I'll be talking about some of those evolutions over the past years and the recent ones. In the present day the department responds to many types of emergency emergencies including fires, emergency medical calls, hazardous materials and incidents, and specialized rescues. The department also provides medical services, fire code enforcement, public education, and fire investigations. These are all part of a more modern core mission for a fire department. This is a breakdown of our call volume. What you see is the upward trend of the EMS calls property calls or fire calls. And then the small green line, flat line is our hazardous materials calls that affect the environment. This is over 30 years, this trend. While fires more than doubled, EMS calls that you see there have grown six times since we started the EMS service back in 1985. In 1994, we started our transport service. Our concern is with neutral neutral staffing patterns in the department, it necessitates us to continually evolve to meet the needs of our citizens in new ways. But it comes at a cost to everyone who provides the service. And I say that because we are stretched thin at 109,000 calls. You see our members working mandatory um, shifts. Uh, You see that chart right there. It spreads our resources out throughout the city of Sacramento. And it makes weekends, like last weekend, tough for us to respond to every call, but we still do it, we manage it. We're getting to the point where we need to think about new ways of managing it, and we have. What you see in front of you is squad four. Squad four, in the picture to the right, started working at station four on January 9th of this year, and it came out of necessity. We had a station closure, Uh, we worked, with Public Works and found a way to move companies around, address an issue at a station, and at the same time, we were able to trial our squads and see how they worked. And they've answered hundreds of calls. You have one in Midtown at Station 4, and there's another one in South Antomas at Station 15. This helps us keep the frontline apparatus, the engines and trucks available for those more critical calls, while a squad can go out and address the needs of the public in the everyday call that we see all too often now. Um, We talked about the incident management team. Um, Incident management teams are not foreign to the fire service. We use them for every type of major incident. Growing what the incident management team can do will be part of our future. It helps us, we're not going to erase calls, but it helps us get those calls to the right place at the right time and defray free the number of calls that we're going to you with your fire department's equipment. Again, here's population over time and call volume over time. It's really hard, I, I, I tried a bunch of different ways to show this to you, but population is growing fast, but the call volume is growing faster. And a lot of that comes from the uh, surrounding areas and the growth in the city. And it's good growth and that's what we're here to do. We're here to grow with the city, but we're lagging behind right now. and It's time for us to start catching up. I wanna take the time to introduce some of our divisions. First all, I'll introduce our AMS division. You can see their number of staff members when they're fully, uh, every position is filled and their budget, their annual budget. This is a fully blown out EMS division. And when I say fully blown out, that means every position is filled. The wiregram right here shows the division um, the way we see it in the future. We depend on our valued employee participation through additional work to provide quality improvement programs. We know from our results that these programs are work, work. Currently, we're depending on reassigned medics to fill roles that would normally be filled by a nurse or an advanced practitioner. But we're making it work. Here's some of the partners the EMS division continually maintains relationships with and that's important for us because every one of these partners is helping the, the fire department and the men and women on the street day in and day out. The key to this um, was described earlier, but the people who make and build these relationships are what we depend on um, When we have a bunch of our medic units at a hospital um, We can go to the hospital and talk to staff and see which patients um, We can get help get released and get our medic units back on the street But our mission isn't complete um, Without blown, um, filling out that wire diagram that I showed you earlier and it's going to take us some time to get there Here's some, uh, just some notable stats for the AMS division. Almost 80,000 medical aids in 2023. Over 50% of the responses end up in transports to local emergency rooms. And when you hear those news stories about emergency rooms being filled, a lot of times you can drive by Sutter General, Mercy General, UC Davis, and you're gonna see Sacramento Fire Department medic units filling up those emergency room bays. During, during the year, there were over 700 CPRs performed. 1,100 stroke incidents identified by our paramedics. 168 of the most serious type of heart attack, abbreviated as a STEMI up there, which is an elevated ST myocardial infarction. They didn't think I would remember that, but I did. I remember the silliest things sometimes. But this is the most serious type of heart attack that a person can have and survive. There have also been 123 cases resolved with short wait times through our new telemedicine program. And that's one of the things, one of the ways we evolve as a department is using technology and telemedicine is that technology um, that we're able to bring to our citizens on an iPad. And sometimes it doesn't require them leaving their home at all. Other times it's helpful. They may not want that service, but they're talking to a doctor on an iPad. They're having a, an emergency room consult with a doctor on an iPad that convinces them to go to the hospital. and It's a life-saving tool. Also up there, you see the Sacramento Fire Department has received the American Heart Association Mission Lifeline Award for the last seven consecutive years. This isn't something we take lightly, and we like having those streaks, those wind streaks like that. This award is given out to promote excellence in cardiac care, stroke care, and identification. Next is our Fire Prevention and Investigation Division. They, They provide four core services with 39 personnel. Here's the core services. Development services for new construction, plan checks, fire permits for special events, or required permitting fire code enforcement along with mandatory state required inspection. And also in there we have our fire investigation division which reviews all suspicious fires, probable fires or probable arson. As you look at this slide, you see our investigation staff are required, are unique in many ways, determining the cause and origin of a fire, whether it's obvious or hidden. They have experience and expertise to find the smallest clues in the direst of conditions. Our prevention staff are also experts in permitting novel events. You see, you see farm, to, farm to Fork there. Reviewing plans and inspecting construction sites to ensure modern buildings will be safe for years to come. You see the beginning of G1C and it, how it stands today. Fire investigators are called to fires that are suspicious. They conduct a comprehensive review of these fires to determine the cause and origin. The investigations help decrease the fire frequency, monetary loss, fire-related injuries, deaths, and criminal arrests to the persons responsible for the crime of arson or fraud. In 2023, there were a total of 179 arson fires identified. There are only 50 arrests. But of that, those were the people to to be determined to have started a fire or committed fraud and the most dangerous of those people. Our our arson investigation team took a new stance last year. They, They couldn't prosecute everyone, so they went after the most dangerous people. They built the best cases. Fire prevention also creates an annual offset of 4.1 million through permitting new construction fees and code violations. In 2023, the prevention team completed 8,100 development service inspections and 6,300 fire inspections. The staff also completed 3,200 fire plan reviews. Fire investigations had 418 call outs to suspicious fires for which they prosecuted at 28% rate. And this group works tirelessly like you've already heard me say to make our community safer. All right, slide. This one is one of our newest divisions, DOOR, the Diversity Outreach and Recruitment Division. They have a budget of $3.7 million, six total staff members, and this group maintains and adapts our race, gender, and equity plan for the department and our community's needs. They're tirelessly working. They're working all the time. They were working when I left the office today. It's a fun group, they have a lot of energy, and pictured you see some of our new EMS interns. Our outreach and recruitment team is a major connection to the community. As seen here in last year's Pride Parade, the DOOR team represents the Sacramento Fire Department as they continually build relationships and provide opportunities to educate our community. Recruiting at job fairs, high schools, and military reserve units is an amazing way for our youth and veterans in our community to realize they are needed as part of our fire service team or possibly a position elsewhere in the city. All of our city departments have challenges recruiting within the city. So when we talk about these recruitment fairs, not everybody wants to be a firefighter, but they may end up finding a place here in the city that they thrive. Our youth programs help build healthy confident youth who are willing to have, the, who have the tools and are willing to be successful in getting out there on a career, career path that they may choose. Our DOOR, our DOOR program prides itself on its strong partnerships with our community, local education systems, and these are just a few of the local education systems and partners that we continue to grow through the DOOR. This has just been built over the last two years, so I can't say enough about this division and these programs that they run. Some of the recent successes of the Sacramento Fire Department door program are also shown here. A few of our standouts, the twas, excuse me, 12 past fire reserves have been hired by the Sacramento Fire Department. 11 fire reserves are currently and the EMS trainee program which has a total of 20 students there are there are 122 fire reserve participants who are currently employed by local ambulance services private ambulance services or enrolled in an EMT paramedic program upgrading so they can be hired by this fire department between the fire reserves and our other programs we hope these people will be ready to join the Sacramento fire department as full-time employees with the experience they're currently gaining our youth programs have been very successful um, in in bringing these people on board and getting them to the EMT program Uh, we had it in the past and we have it again we know that we'll continue to fill this program all right next Fire suppression, you'll hear us refer to it a lot as fire operations. This is our biggest division. Um, They're forward-facing. They're out there. They're the men and women that I talk about that are in the stations right now. They're in the stations all weekend responding to those calls that I spoke about. The operations division of the Sacramento Fire Department is also very flexible and diverse. It's the frontline public safety response force that we depend on. These two maps right here show how the city is broken down, and I hope they're better for you on your screen. Uh, But what you see is there's some light concentric circles on the map to the right. Those are the response areas for the uh, company inside the center of the circle. The map on the left, it's kind of overwhelming. Those are just arson fires. It's a heat map showing where the arson fires occur in the city. There's not a council district that isn't involved With a crime of arson again this shows the battalions as well the battalions are noted in there they're just hard to see so I'll explain it for you (laughs) there's four battalions that break up the city and those four battalions have between six and eight companies that they're in charge of and usually on a major fire a major incident you're gonna have two battalion chiefs that go with the companies and manage that incident If it gets really big, the assistant chiefs sitting behind me and the deputy chiefs also respond out as well as I do. All right, here's what the daily staffing looks like and how the division is broken out. The operation division is made up of 24 community-based fire stations, which I spoke to you about. Again, they're 24 24/7 response. There's one assistant chief managing all this every day. There's four frontline battalion chiefs, and again, the effective daily response force of 178 personnel who respond to all fires, EMHs, emergencies, and hazardous materials incidents. There's also three professional staff members staffing the department on a daily basis, and you see their office there with all the companies and the names up on the magnetic board. They use an electronic system, but you still have to track it manually because people are moving around. This department responds to major emergencies, and this collage of pictures, just as pictures over time, there's a five-alarm fire that we stopped. We didn't burn the city down. There's a semi that crashed into the Capitol. It came down 11th Street, crashed into the Capitol while um, people were in session inside the Capitol, the department controlled that fire we respond to major medical emergencies and you have the trestle fire in the bottom left Um, this department put that fire out and had union pacific railroad up and running within 30 days we didn't rebuild the trestle but we put it out so they could get in and get commerce moving again In 2023, special operations, or excuse me, operations, spent 200 hours planning for special events. Provided over 250 special events, or provided staff to over 250 special events, including the general or the Golden One Center. Those costs, um, actually, we were able this year to recover costs to the tune of 274 thousand dollars. So that went out for our planning hours and our time on scene with those events Um, right now with the movie that's being shot here in town, we've been out uh, just like PD and and the other departments providing assistance for those movie sets. Special operations is part of the operations division consists of two type one hazmat companies a single type one rescue company, four boat companies, one FEMA urgent urban search and rescue team consisting of 200 personnel. And those are from our partner agencies too. Special operations provides hazardous materials mitigation, special event support and coordination that I already spoke about. Personnel assigned in the operation, special operations division receive special training through our FEMA partners and on their own, they'll go out and get specialized training and it supports all the unique technical rescue um, calls that we go to. So we did save Santa Claus's life, so if your kids ever ask, that, that's him in the stuck up in the power lines. Um, the center picture with a lot of blue in it is our folks doing a tower climb, and very, way up on top, there's a lady who um, was having a psychiatric emergency that they were able to get down safely and lower to the ground uh, without getting her electrocuted. We had a person get in the old city water tower there. Um, At least that's what we thought. We went and checked on it, there was nobody there. And then we had the hazmat house in the bottom right. Um, It took us about a week to clean this house house out. It had several hundred unique compounds inside of the house and it was old chemist who had passed away. And we went through and categorized everything he left behind. He had no, he had no relatives. There was no one to contact, so we really had to go step by step through this whole house. And he was a retired chemist from the state. Those are just some of the unique calls that you see throughout the year in the Sacramento Fire Department. Here's the operations breakdown. Um, This graphic basically highlights the operations volume. and You'll hear me talk about the volume issue. You can see the incoming calls of 452,604 calls. Those are what gets sorted down to the 109,000 calls that are actual responses for the department. Again, there were 79,000 EMS responses, over 5,000 fires, and over 1,200 hazardous materials calls. This volume means that every 4.8 minutes there's a response from the department. There's a fire every 90 minutes. Our call volume increases on average by 3% a year. It continues to escalate, and we continue to meet those calls with the staffing that we have. Our support services division is probably one of the most challenging divisions. It was a division I um, came from, I won't say I know the most about it because it's always growing and changing. Um, It has a small budget of $8 million to take care of those firefighters, the 24 stations, and over 34 um, buildings that we're in. They take care of all of the department's logistics, all of our fleet, and they coordinate with the outside departments. Here's the internal, what it looks like. How we break it down, you see fleet and facilities to the right of logistics. It's because the assistant chief in logistics is constantly coordinating with those outside divisions in the city to get things done at those decentralized stations. It's a good way um, for us to be out in the community and we have good relationships with those other internal departments within the city. The support services division faces many issues with challenges brought on by growing deferred maintenance and a lack of available funds to address the issues with the 24 stations. And when I say lack of available funds, it's not that the funds aren't there. It's just the deferred maintenance problem citywide. Um, you'll hear this and I know you've heard this already it grows at a pace that we, we just can't keep up with. I use that picture of station four a lot throughout this um, presentation because it's 90 years old. That station's uh, served its purpose well for this department. Um, we all like <laughs> working there. It's just getting a little tight, a little small um, for how we deploy today as a modern fire department. Support services also faces supply chain issues, and every day they're out there trying to get what the men and women of the Sacramento Fire Department need to the stations for them to operate. Simple things, dish soap, towels, um, the stuff that we're all used to having in our homes, support services gets it to the folks in the stations. They're also trying to revamp these stations. Um, some of the older stations are pictured here. And we, we know we constantly have a list of stations that need um, repair or replacement when we talk about replacement, it's it's nothing short of, I'll say, $15 million. And I'm sure um, Public Works is cringing in the back room right now. It's probably more than that. But there's a lot of things that go into it. It, it could be a piece of property alone, right? It, it could drive up the cost of a station. When we built Station 15, we were lucky that we were able to, through the Quinby Act, uh, reutilize a park. Station 14, new Station 14, those stations both would have been in this picture. but we were able to uh, reuse some city-owned land to build Station 14. The core services of the division are, are providing, again, station supplies, but it's not just that. It's respiratory protection equipment. We depend on that. We cannot do our job without it, and there's over 314 pieces of equipment that they maintain day in and day out. Coordinating with fleet and facilities management, It's another part of their day, daily job. Here's the stats from this one. 85 fire apparatus that are maintained in our city's shops, and we're we're proud to have them working on it. We know that we're getting a good product. 30 medic units. It takes 30 medic units to keep 18 medic units on the road. That's how much those medic units are running around the city. And no, we do not have a note. Sticky note to turn your siren on when you go by City Hall. That's just how much they're out there. So. 1.8 million miles drive, driven in 2023. That number continues to go up. That, that number costs all the way across. It's fuel. It's miles on the equipment. It's wear and tear. And the last number I like, Station 4 opened in 1933. And we... We know that they've cooked 98,550 meals there in over 90 years, so. I say that because these stations don't stop. It's like if you look at your kitchen at home, your bedroom, go into any space in your house, imagine if it was being used 24-7, 365. So there's a lot of wear and tear in the stations. And I know you've all seen it. Um, You've all been in your stations in your districts. And it's just never-ending. And we're not hard on stuff. We take care of stuff, but it's just a lot. The food is good. That is true. That will never not be true in the Sacramento Fire Department. You don't get a face like this without good food. So. The core services of the fire communications, excuse me, support services and technical services group consists of communications, IT data management, and this group is comprised of only four personnel with an $8 million budget. It's an $8 million budget because everything they handle is expensive. It's technology. We're always chasing technology in the fire service. Um, But technology has been our friend with that increasing volume that we talk about throughout this presentation. Fire communications group oversees the radio systems, station alerting. Those are the wake up bells that you've all experienced, I think. and all of our mobile commu- computer systems that are in the fire apparatus. The staff also responds and repairs the communication equipment 24 seven. So those four people are up 24 seven when a captain calls from a station and says, their mobile data computer is not working, they go out and make sure it's working. They, they can't take calls without it. It's not safe and they're not gonna get calls without it. The assistant chief and captain support the regional uh, fire communication center as well. That's another thing that's different than the fire department. Our fire services are dispatched through one regional center. Law enforcement has their own dispatch center in the city of Sacramento. But with that, we have the ability to receive aid and give aid uh, with the other fire services in Sacramento County. So that's a benefit to everybody, all the citizens in Sacramento County and the city of Sacramento. The assistant chief... And communications and IT is also in charge of data management. He oversees all the fire department software, cellular devices, and ensures connectivity for the department at all times. And when I say at all times, I mean throughout storms. Um, We've had our communications center go down, and he's the one that's out there in the middle of the night getting us back up, whether it's cell phones and portable radios. He's making sure that we're receiving calls and not missing calls. This is what they take care of, 652 portable radios, 180 mobile radios, 120 mobile computers. And the difference between portable and mobile, mobile's in the vehicle, portable you can get out with. You have to have both. 95 station computers, and they also received those 911 calls. That's coming in through the comp center. It takes, it's gotta be somebody there and there's usually 12 people on the floor receiving those calls. The training vi- division with the Sacramento Fire Department has a budget of $4.2 million. It has 12 assigned personnel. The Sacramento Fire Department is a very recognized leader when it comes to training and its multidiscipline training. We collaborate with over 20 different organizations, and these are just a few of our partners in our training. This division provides several types of training, such as in-service training for personnel who graduated from the academy, apprenticeship training for those personnel who have graduated, but they're not at the journey level yet in their career. They also provide apprenticeship training for a person who's promoted and hasn't Reach the journey level in their new promotion or their, their newly promoted position. Those numbers add up fast. And when you look at this, the, the total number of hours of training by the collective Sacramento Fire Department was over 438 hours of training, 438,000 hours of training, which equals 50 years if you do it 8,700 hours of tri- in a year. There's 50 years of training by the men and women of the department. Why is that important? Everything that you just saw um, is what we do. When I talk about life, property, and environment, we're the only ones in the city of the Sacramento that can respond to a fire, that can restart someone's heart and can mitigate a hazardous material incident. That's what we're here for. We're forward facing, we're out in the communities. And there's, there's many positive aspects to what we do. There's a lot of success stories. The department also has concerns, but those concerns are opportunities for us. The department is challenged with a growing deferred maintenance issue and I've talked about that. It's aging stations were challenged by that, but those are opportunities. The city of Sacramento responds to more calls with less available resources to pull from when compared to our partnering agencies within the region. Our call volume and our staffing helps us do this. Call volume is what we fight against. Our staffing is what helps us respond to it. We're we're continually strained by the call volume. I think I've said that enough. I hope I got that point across. This continues to drive the need for new concepts and partnerships, such as a new relationship with the Department of Community Response. Um, Brian Pedro talked well about how we collaborate on different ideas. Um, the incident management the team itself and we talked about the street overdose response team and how we can capitalize on the opioid money um, Between two departments not one department um, We do have an issue with increasing Injuries in the department the personnel are, are stretched. There's a lot of calls. You're tired Um and we have a dangerous job that causes a lot of injuries. Everybody sitting behind me probably has, if not one or two, uh, knee, back, or shoulder injuries. It's part of what happens over a 30-year career. The this, this future success of this department will, is going to depend on developing the interests of our youth and our young adults. Um, it's the proactive involvement, the DOOR program, being out in the communities letting people know that there is a doorway into the city service, whether it be with the fire department, another city department, or the police department, getting out and being in the communities and talking to the youth in the communities, talking to the young adults in the communities, letting them know that this is a place where they can be. While we partner and collaborate with many agencies inside and outside of the city, it's also important for us to think of new ways to make this department better for the citizens that are here. We don't want to have that day where we miss a call. We don't want to have that day where we can't answer a call. And we've had those days already where we've had no Medicaid that's available in Sacramento County. That's not just a city of Sacramento problem. It's a countywide issue. But it's what we're faced as the city grows. People grow around us. People live in other communities, but they come to the city of Sacramento to work and play and have a nightlife. And that's why you see those numbers going up. Um, The city's going vertical. It's another challenge for the fire service. As the city grows up, we go up to take on those challenges, whether it's a medical aid or a fire. So that's my summary for you. I'm here for you if you have any questions.
7: All right. Thank you so much, Chief, for the, the very thorough presentation, and um, always really appreciate the professor- professionalism of the department. I've had an opportunity to go see different fire stations, including one in my neighborhood, and, and do my ride along, and um, it's always really amazing to me the amount of work think it can get. Oh, that's really great. The amount <laughs> of work that gets done with uh, with the number of people, and it, as you just said, it's always growing um, as our city grows, so does our, the needs. So just appreciate that, and I'll pass it on over to Mayor Pro Tem Karina Telemontes.
1: Thank you, um,
9: Chief. I'm going to put you on the hot spot. Uh, what's your favorite meal to cook at the station?
14: Oh, uh, polenta. Polenta. Yeah.
9: Okay. All right. Sounds good. We'll have to have uh, your <laughs> PIO make a content about that. So. Yeah. Or
14: raviolis in at Christmas time. So.
9: Okay, got it. Um, I know during my 24-hour ride-along I had a structure fire, I had a water rescue. I honestly had every single call possible the fire department could have and no sleep. I did bring my comforter and my pillow. I got no sleep. Um, So just ever since that experience, I mean, every day I'm thankful. When I see the fire trucks in the neighborhood, I'm like, oh, is that fire truck 15, 18, 43? And if I see one that's not in Thomas, I'm like, oh, they're really busy. That means that someone from Del Paso had to come down, someone from downtown had to come down. I'm just hyper aware of that, um, you know, since my experience. But I, I was curious about just how the fire department is experiencing uh, significant mandatory overtime um, and brownouts. I know that you didn't get a chance to touch base on that in this report, so I just wanted to hear how we're dealing with that.
14: Well, I'll, I'll tell you, um, brownouts or temporary closures. They they were north of over 100 brownouts last year so that pours into the mandatory overtime and that's what i was talking about earlier the dedication of the men and women in the department they're the ones that mandatory is mandatory they're getting held at the station and that's why i say they come to work for a 48-hour shift they're usually there longer Um, how do we combat that we fill those vacancies Um, our detail pool is what fills And covers the vacancies for vacation, sick leave, um, and those IOD hours. Um, The detail pool is, there's not enough there right now. We can have 19 vacations a day, but we really only have 13 people in detail pool. So you're starting out at a a delta of six. And that's what we need to work on. That will help us a lot.
9: And what does the wall time look like right now?
14: I can't tell you right now. It it is getting better, but in Sacramento County, uh, we have a new LIMPSA director. He's pushing hard. AB AB 40 is very helpful for us, and that's going to require the hospitals to turn around um, the patient offload time within, I'm going to lean because I already forgot, 30 minutes? 20. 20 is aggressive, I would say. And I'm looking at the people who support me every day. I'm looking at Brian Pedro and Tilden Billiter. Um, uh, we're at 90 minutes, I think, for an average wow. in Sacramento County.
9: Um, so. And just for anyone that's watching this, wall time is the amount of time a fire truck spends outside of an emergency room at a hospital like UC Davis or um, just any of the hospitals here in the region.
14: I'll make one correction because I know there is people watching. Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that's a medic unit. The medic unit sits with the patient. The fire engine or fire truck they go back to the station and there's days where we have to rotate um, people in to give those medics a break they're sitting on the wall sometimes north of four hours with a patient and it's important for us to give them a break it's also important very important for us to work with the hospitals and the county limsa on the patient offload time uh, because we can't stay there and do the hospital's work all the time but we're willing to work with them
7: Okay, thank you. Thank you Mayor Protem. And and kind of on that note, um, you know, if that's something you can speak about publicly, is, is that something you're working on from a policy perspective? You know, I know you've been doing some work regionally. So, I don't know if you want to
14: speak. Yeah. To. So, I think the first step was us being actively involved in hiring the new limpsa director. Um, he's been very helpful. You ha- we have AB40 and what we is also
0: 40. Can you describe AB40? AB40
14: is the Am- ambulance patient offload time bill and it it's where we work with the hospitals and they're supposed to turn over the patient within 20 minutes so from us hitting their back doors giving a report to the nurse in 20 minutes they go from our cot to their cot that's that's in the summary the legal summary <laughs>
7: <laughs> appreciate the brief summary yeah. council member Kaplan.
12: Thank you, Vice Mayor. Um, Chief, we've talked about this, you know, as I'm a proud former school board member and having uh, a hand in creating our public safety academy that we have at Intercom High School. And, you know, increasing that pipeline. But always part of it is, as they graduate high school, they can't necessarily, you know, jump over right away. And how do we bridge that gap? Um, is one of those issues because, you know, in high school they may be all jazzed up and they start going to college. We may not get them into the careers um, that we would like.
14: So I think one of the ways we bridge that gap is with the reserve program. Um, They can come in and start working on their EMT um, and after they're an EMT they can work on their paramedic license. Once they're an EMT they can go to work, and there's a note in the slides in there, where they go to work for a private ambulance. That keeps them interested it gets them trained um, before they, literally, before they hit the streets in Sacramento. Because our ambulances are so busy. I most, I know that I think there's close to. I don't want to misquote. We have ambulances running over 6,000 calls a year. So if you can imagine that, if you're a young person coming into that right away, that's what I thought I wanted to do. I was not ready for it at 20 years old when I started my career, I I got to build up to coming into the city service. So we encourage everybody in the pipeline programs to get out there, get that experience, and then come to work for the city when they're of age.
12: Which I I really appreciate that, but it's, I think, you know, and you... I think the department's doing a good job, but it's getting out there also to our, our younger generation and those in the community college to understand, because sometimes how everything works, um, increasing that pipeline is, is not an easy jump for, the, uh, for those who are just trying to figure out what they want to do with their life.
14: And I, I did, I didn't talk about it enough, but the door, the folks in the door division are out there in the colleges and they're talking to people and they're letting them know that they're, this is a career that they can have. I think the other challenge we have is drilling down far enough. Like high school is great, but we want to be in junior high school. We want kids to know in junior high school that this can be a career. Um, So, And I, I know law enforcement is the same way. It's junior high school is where we want to make the contact and get them interested in these careers with public.
12: Thank you. And so I want to call out, uh, you, you talked about this, and I apologize. I was on my phone a little bit, because I needed to figure out statistics. And I'm an attorney, so uh, the calculator is, is, is my friend. But I looked at, so our population growth since 1994 has been 19%. Yeah. Our call volume since 1994 has increased 58.89%. And if I did my math correctly, our EMS call volume has increased 95%. Have we as the city been able to uh, increase the number of personnel in our fire department that we have hired to uh, stay with some of these increases?
14: So, yes, we have increased the number of personnel since 1994. It hasn't been enough. Um, We started out with three ambulances in 1994. Today we have 18. Um, the number of calls that are coming in, its we, we drop about 9,500 calls a year that go to inside the city that other agencies answer. And those aren't all, those are medical aids. That's not other types of calls. So it's managing that right now that myself and my team behind me, we talk about all the time, there's calls that we need to cut out. There's over 20,000 calls in that medical aid group that are calls to the homeless community. Not every one of those needs a paramedic unit, but it does need somebody to go out and see what what they're calling about. And when they come through 911, that's when you talk about alternate 911. You want to keep the person going to services, but not to a hospital because it just, it adds to that patient offload time issue that we have here in the city of Sacramento and Sacramento County.
12: Thank you for that because you basically took me along where uh, providing another reason why alternative response is not only going to help the city and those out there but also help our firefighters and bring some call volume down. Because I know nationally on where we're supposed to be with the city of Sacramento on call volume with the number of stations we are at the, the extreme high amount we aren't even average where how busy our stations um, are so you know nothing like asking to be average again Um, but but I know that that when we look at that that is that is something we need to do and if an alternative response model can help bring down that call volume um, again um, thank you for working uh, with our incident management team uh, on this because we got to look at different ways of doing it and you've made a case
14: And I'll say this real quick. I'll plug public safety. Um, Alternate 911 doesn't just help the fire department. It helps everybody in the city. It helps the police department with crime issues. It helps us get people to the right service first. Um, And it keeps the 911 system where it needs to be. You talked about call volume. That little station four has one company in it and runs 6,000 calls a year. Um, some of those stations run 6,000. You'll have an engine running 6,000 calls, but there's two companies, and there's some sharing that goes on there. Um, we're maxed out at a lot of our stations. At 3,500 calls a year is where you start looking to put in another company. But the companies alone don't solve this problem, and it's what you're talking about. It's it's finding new ways um, to solve the volume issue that we're dealing with. Thanks, Chief.
7: Thank you. Council McGill.
11: Thank you very much, Vice Mayor. I uh, appreciate this. I'll, um, I'm going to focus my comments in two areas. Um, and uh, first I'll start off with, uh, you know, we're moving into obviously an, an, another tough budget year. And one of my concerns has been, you know, how we're planning on the infrastructure side in uh, uh, for the long term. and uh, and, I, and I think back about the first time um, when I went as a as a president for the Tahoe Park Neighborhood Association to have dinner w- over at Station 10, and remember seeing you know how old the station was, and you know shortly after uh, you know I was elected to the council, and and you and I had lots of conversations about Station 10 and yeah. about you know the the wood rot you know the the roof situation, the showers, the exhaust coming into the barracks. Uh, and, and first, I just want to thank you because, you know, when we brought those issues to mind in your earlier capacity uh, and, and, you know, I think we have the benefit of having you where you, you've had three generations of, of, of fire service in your family. So you've seen Sacramento's evolution, but um, we were able to provide some of those exhausts, some of the, you know, improvements to the showers so that they weren't pulling up and even the new kitchen, you know. For our constituent uh, you know who's also part of the surf program Kathy Winkleman obviously was a big advocate for that but I'm very proud that our office was able to push for improvements in the kitchen because as you mentioned um, that's our personnel that's living there uh, you know 24 hours uh, a day and, and that quality of, of, of life and just the health and you know the the health of the uh, the the firefighters is, is critical but station 10 uh, station 4 um, you know our station 60 are just some examples of our fire stations that were built in the 50s. Um, 14, you know, don't want to go into the history of the cost and what ended up with that, but I, I've got a, a significant concern about, you know, this is part of more, when you look at, at, uh, at our CIPs, long-term planning, um, I do feel that we need to start figuring out, even with the two-year difficult years ahead, what how we're actually going to tackle that. So, uh, you know, as we move through the year, I'd like to understand, okay, what is our strategy? I mean, obviously, my preference would be to level Station 10 and rebuild a new one, uh, look at what are the multiple uses that we could use for that that space and that land that we have. That also provides an additional benefit to the community, but also provides us with the right type of capital. I mean, Station uh, 60 uh, right now provides a lot of the assistance in the industrial area as well with Station 10, but we still have station nine that's been closed. You know, I mean, we, we use it for the cadets, is my understanding, and some training, but we still have that, that, um, that area uh, that's, that's still closed. Um, so, and, and what it's led to is we have areas where we have a higher response time um, in uh, South Sac communities and areas where there are more low-income families. Um, and I know we can't get there overnight, but I'd like to start thinking through what is that strategy to provide uh, one not only the deferred maintenance in in these and uh, these uh, stations that we have, but also uh, making sure that as we as we grow and as the industrial area is growing, where the positive benefit of manufacturing and whatnot that's happening in the industrial area is a very positive thing. But um, with Station Nine still not being operational, um, I think it was closed in the 1992. 1992, right? You know, it was, it was a while ago. You know, I worry about where the future is. So. Um, if we're successful in, in bringing more industrial manufacturing and higher wage jobs, uh, which that is our optimism to make sure we do, we also need to have the, the level of service and response in those areas. So um, I'd like to see the, thinking through that, and, and sometimes it's best to plan in the worst times because that helps us think through what's what's realistic. Um, and then finally, um, you know, I, I want to um, go back to, in 2016, we brought this issue up of, the, of diversity and equity. And I'm very glad that we're now uh, executing the DOOR program. Um, it's taken that long. And, I, you know, I think, um, I've, I think we have change in leadership in our department. I appreciate that. Um, and one of the things I'd like to make sure that we're, uh, we're thinking about in this pipeline program, and I'd like to see a more formal MOU with our high schools, with our academies, to have a public safety pipeline. And I'll mention this when uh, the next council hearing, when uh, police, uh, the police department comes up, because I, I want to make sure that we're looking at at two-week goals. Many of our households, in, particularly in the South Sac area, the medium household income is around 40000 and these careers for young people moves them directly into the middle class with medical benefits, with retirement, and with public service to their community. Uh, and I do see that it's an also an opportunity where our communities are so diverse to address the fact that we still have, uh, you know, less than 30 percent of the department that is you know, people of color and, uh, and women in the fire department. I do think that there is multiple benefits of making sure that as we go through this crunch time in this t- uh, close budget year, that we don't uh, cripple the ability for us to continue to recruit locally um, and uh, to also address our income inequality that's in our city by looking at these careers that, that the city offers. So, uh, uh, one, I want to emphasize that aspect. We have numerous academies um, that we have, both Intercom, Hiram Johnson, uh, these programs that uh, are within the city. But I do believe we haven't done the best approach of, of talking about how these are pipelines into the, into the middle class for for families in areas where we um, can recruit local public servants. Finally, I just, you know, it might be a minor thing for folks, um, but uh, I do appreciate the work on the nuisance issues, like illegal fireworks that have hurt people and uh, and also have burnt down homes. Um, And I think that that's something that people forget that the fire department also are sworn officers, um, and we have to continue to go after uh, that aspect of it. I know it's a bigger federal issue that, that's involved with, with the interstate uh, illegal commerce of fireworks, um, but what may seem a f- fun, uh, fun thing for someone's backyard party has resulted in, um, in some damage and, and hurt uh, young people because of it. So I want to thank you for, for that effort. Um, and um, again, I think those are top of mind issues. You know, One, our long-term impacts to some of our aging stations, and also uh, how as we crunch time here, we don't jeopardize the pathway of recruiting locally and also making sure that our department is also reflective of our city as well. So thank you, Vice Mayor.
7: Thank you, Council Member. Council Member Jennings.
11: Thank
8: you very much. Um, great, great presentation. I'm going to make this as brief as possible. I wanted to kind of pile on about door. Okay. Um, it is a doorway into the fire department, but also into the city of Sacramento. And so, a lot of those kids that are going through that program, whether it's through your youth academy, the girls' camp, the career technical um, education programs, they're they're absolutely looking for an opportunity for a career, not only in the fire department but in public government. So, I want to acknowledge that and just say good job on that. I want to acknowledge the 250 uh, public events that you're doing annually, because when you're out there wearing that uniform, looking better than I did when I was in my uniform. You, um, you're out there impressing a lot of people and they're looking at uh, potentially a career where they can take care of their families for a long time. So I'm glad to see you out there. You're doing great work while you're out there. Um, and the recovery of $274,000 is not bad either. Uh, and then I wanna just thank you for your commitment to training. Um, I believe that training is a tool for retention. Everybody's not chasing the dollar. They're looking for more training in order to be able to do a better job and be able to do the job that they signed up for in the first place. So that commitment, the training of 439,000 hours equals out to 18,000 days, 2,600 weeks, and 50 years of training. So good job on that and keep doing it. And I just want to, the final thank you is I want to thank your entire department, fire department, for the work that they do every day to keep us safe. And I also want to thank you for your quiet leadership. It has been refreshing. Um, And I'll stop it at that because it's exactly what the fire department needed. And so I want to thank you personally for your leadership in all the areas that I've mentioned, plus many, many more.
14: I Can can I just say real quick, thank you. Um, But I couldn't be that quiet if it wasn't for the loud ones behind me. So
8: thank you. I I didn't say it out loud, but I called it the cool hand loop kind of leadership. (laughs) So if they want to take that moniker and give it to you, it's fine with me. Thank you.
7: And, and uh, while we're on that note, I think now might be an appropriate time if, if the members of your team wouldn't mind standing and being recognized by the City Council. Please stand. Thank you for all your hard work and your service to the City of Sacramento. And now, Mayor Steinberg.
0: Very briefly, um, I started with a Costamagna, and I'm going to end with a Costamagna. Um, pretty good. Pretty good. And uh, I think that's uh, two great leaders. Thank you. Chris. Um, and to your entire team. Um, there's so many things to to comment and I'm going to leave it at this. Um, one form of alternative response has been the development of single role. Yes. And I just want to thank you and I want to thank Ryan Henry and I want to thank 522 because that doesn't happen without collaboration. And and by the way, it didn't happen uh, for some years uh, because the, the relationships and the chemistry was not right, and now it is. And that's going to go, uh, I think, a long way towards uh, improving some of the demand needs that you've laid out but also hopefully save us some resources uh, over the long haul maybe to expand the fire service in the way that that we need the other thing I just want to say and this is we're going to hear the police department next time I'd like to have a separate workshop I know the city manager is not sitting here but sometime in the spring around the whole issue of alternative response I think it is worth a sub I think it is worth a full afternoon of discussion broadly Because, you know, the fact of the matter is, police and fire. um, I know you tease each other, you know, rivals on the football field and all that. But you have so much in common, including the fact that you both are first responders to way too much. Uh, That you don't have to be, if we really have alternative response, We talked about in the homeless area and the mental health area. I think this is worth a broad discussion, because, for example, you mentioned the state bill. I know there's other state bills pending. The question of whether or not your single-role EMTs can drop people off at other than hospitals, which is an ongoing ongoing discussion that needs to be had. We need to understand it so that we can weigh in appropriately, because the emergency room cannot be the, the first and last resort for every single thing in our community where it's needed of course but you know I've I've experienced this with my ride-along you know the young people had too much to drink in the downtown and friend called 911 because they were worried their friend was really sick and of course the only resort was to come with the full full-on engine and 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 head right to the emergency room with all the wall time and, and really There's got to be alternatives in so many areas so that you can do what you are trained and equipped to do, which is provide life-saving care and treatment to people who need it and to fight fires. And I want want a broader discussion with police and fire about this so that we can help you and maybe have some impact over at the legislature um, and weigh in on some of these bills, because I know there's scope of practice and a lot of special interest stuff going back and forth, but let's get informed in a public setting and let's go make sure that we can allow you to deploy your resources most effectively and efficiently. Real,
14: real quick, may I say, I, I didn't probably speak about single role enough, so thank you for bringing yeah. it up, Mr. Mayor. No um, since we started ALS service, Advanced Life Support Services in 1994, single role will probably, not probably, will be, the single biggest evolution for the fire department and its services. So it's, it's so important for us to get it done and get it done right, and that's where working with the city partners, working with Local 522 and getting it done right gives us the, the flexibility to provide that service even better than we do today. So thank you.
7: And Thank you, Chief. Yeah. Appreciate it. All right. Madam City Clerk, do we have any public comments on the
1: side? Yes, Vice Mayor, I have three um, public commenters on item one. The first is Travis Castle, Castle, so Travis, then MVW, and then O.
15: Welcome.
16: So if you found a genie's lamp, what would you wish for? You'd want a budget the uh, balance of budget without making cuts to your current programs. But you'd also wanna expand what you do. So you can help the homeless, help public safety such as fire and EMS, equality with the reparations and forgivable business loans that we covered on 16th. But you'd also wanna help internationally. So, human beings should be treated like human beings. Anywhere help is needed we can provide for current needs such as food, and medicine, I anticipate needs such as legal support to get them to safety, but we can also rebuild homes, that way we're not adding to the refugee camps. Uh, There's over over 300, there's over 30 million current refugees in the world. And we can also create a mural that would celebrate all the success of the program, as you see here. So this doesn't have to be a fantasy. You don't need a genie. All we have to do is make this an agenda item. This program will generate around $10 million a year uh, in phase one alone, all without taxpayer money. It is funded with a eight-phase program where businesses, for $40 a month, support the cause that they want. They get a sticker, and they also get the uh, discount card where they can uh, advertise discounts to the public for $20 a year, gets the discount card so they can enjoy the um, discounts and save hundreds of dollars by shopping locally. Rome, Rome wasn't built overnight. <laughs> stop But it's built by Romans. This program will work. It's gonna take work. And it just takes a lot less work than writing grants that are increasingly unreliable. This is set up to help address this shortfall. I am not a nonprofit. I'm a retired firefighter paramedic. I created this because I'm tired of people suffering, I'm tired of people dying. Thank you for your
1: comments. Your time is complete. Thank you. Our next speaker is MVW then O.
16: That is the best.
17: Twenty-seven people become unhoused every single day in Sacramento. Over 1,200 children under the age of 17 are in Sacramento's shelter system. Over 3,000 still live on the street every single night. 42% of the unhoused in Sacramento are African American and look like me and Rick. Sacramento jail almost has the same exact amount of African American people, but happy Black History Month, right? One unhoused person dies every other day in Sacramento. There are over 3,000 on the wait list currently, and it's over 30 days until something will open up. How many will die while they're on the wait list? 54,000 needles, but there are zero safe consumption sites. Zero harm reduction supplies are given out, are funded by the city, and zero education services about actually what is fentanyl, what is heroin, what is cocaine, what are these drugs that people are using and why are people using? 240 unhoused died just last year on our streets. $42,000, $42,000, 42, excuse me, $42 million is spent on homelessness as the unhoused crisis triples on our streets due to your policies of enforcement instead of care. Remember, for every one person you house, two more become unhoused. 41% of those who left the city-run shelters ended in a more positive outcome. Was the more positive outcome housing? If not, what could be more positive than that? You guys decided not to talk about the police today. But let's just remember that the police and your policies have a history of having apartheid in our own city where almost 50% of the outside on the streets are black.
1: Thank you for your comments. Our next speaker is O. Thank you for your comments. Our next speaker is O.
2: It was stated up here earlier that the city does not move someone unless an alternative has been offered several times. Front Street got swept right after the point in time count. What's sad is you could tell folks at the camp cleaned up their spaces to avoid a potential sweep they probably feared was coming after the count. We had driven by the camp multiple times to check on folks. We saw toddlers living and playing there and then everyone was swept in a matter of 24 hours right before the storm hit. They weren't blocking any businesses, homes, infrastructure. There were no schools nearby. They weren't camping on any sidewalks. People need housing. They don't need friendly conversations with DCR, which leads to them being swept or criminalized because they were offered services. We do not come here because what you think we're against. We come here because of the love we have for our community. We're here because we don't want black, brown, and poor people dying on our streets again this year. We're here because even if you don't care about the black and brown and house babies y'all keep sweeping, we do. Did you know that if DCR actually lived up to its original intended purpose, a black man named Dante Day would still be alive today, instead of being gunned down by Sac PD at the light rail at Sac City College last year. What's crazy but not surprising is in Sac PD's edited and narrated body cam footage, coincidentally, they forgot to include the fact that there was a 911 call that came in saying Dante was asking for mental health help, and instead of the help, he was met with bullets that ultimately took his life life. A doctor named Jen Mullen said, I'm not blaming white supremacy. I am holding it accountable. I am not blaming the mental health industrial complex. I am holding it accountable. I am calling attention to the systemic targeting of oppressed communities under the false pretense of health and safety. I am holding the institution of white supremacy accountable for the ways in which resources have been poorly and criminally allocated. The ways in which mental health is underfunded across every institution of learning, but inner city police forces are overfunded. You're our Black and Brown communities and the data. They can- Thank
1: you for your comments. Your time is complete, Mayor- Vice Mayor. I have no more speakers um, for this agenda item. I do have five, um, six for comments not on the agenda.
7: Okay, um, let's do let's do public comment not on the agenda next.
1: Perfect. Beatrice Mirales, Richard Liebold, Barry Marcus. I know some people have left, so if you're here, please line up. Beatrice Mirales. I don't see movement. Richard
13: Leibold, then Barry Uh, I'm Barry Marcus. Welcome. Can I start? Yes. Um, Sitting here today, I realize that your council is dealing with very large, overarching, intractable problems, and I commend you for that. Uh, My issue doesn't reach nearly that level, but I think it's important, and it's one that it might affect everyone in the, all the property owners in the city. Uh, I live at 2015 D Street in Midtown. And I recently had a sewer lateral blockage. And for those of you who don't know what that is, the lateral is the part of the sewer that extends from your property line to the main. And the utilities department told me that, according to the city ordinance, Uh, Homeowners are responsible to get that taken care of. And I thought that was curious because every other jurisdiction in the county, including the county itself and the city of Folsom, takes that responsibility. So I looked at the ordinance. In Ordinance Section 13.08.140, says that the city may but shall not be required to unblock or repair this portion of the customer's private service line. And as you might imagine, the word may is very problematic because there are no guidelines as to when and under what condition or circumstance the city might take responsibility. so, I have a couple of proposals that I have forwarded to Ms. Valenzuela that, that I hope you'll um, take under consideration.
3: And we have, um, and I, um, Pravani, who heads the Department of Utilities, who's sitting back there, and I have already started discussing some of your ideas, Mr. Berry, so we'll hopefully have some thoughts soon. Okay. Thank you for providing them.
18: Thank you. Yeah.
1: Next speaker is Richard Leibold, and then Marbella-Sala.
18: Good afternoon. I'm Richard Leibold, and Barry hired me as a consultant as a result of this backup that had occurred in his house. I used to work for the Sacramento Area Sewer District for five years. And to give you an idea how the city and the county respond differently, in Barry's situation, he wouldn't call a plumber if he lived in the county of Sacramento. He would call the county and the county would send somebody out and they would take whatever actions was necessary to reduce or remove the problem at no charge because he pay, we pay for it in our monthly fee, which I think is about 20 bucks a month. And I don't understand why it's so different in the city, why he has to hire a plumber to come out for $400, whereas in the county, the county takes care of it. And that's basically what I wanted to say about that. I also, Daniel here, I wanted you to know that in 1995, when we had a flood after Folsom had to open up all their gates and their emergency spillways, the gap between the American River and the bottom of the Howe Avenue Bridge was this much. That's how much water was coming through and it was incredible. And that's all I have to say. Any questions, please.
7: Thank you, sir. Um, Mr. Assistant City Manager, would you mind having a staff member reach out to Mr. Marcus regarding his issue?
18: Yes,
4: absolutely. We have your contact information on the card and we have Pravani in the back there that you can meet with. and. Maybe provide some exchange some information so we can follow up.
2: Thank you, sir. Um,
18: could we come back if?
1: Yes, your time is complete though this afternoon. Thanks, Marbea Sala, Guy Stevenson, then Macworthy.
15: Hi, thank you. Um, I'm sorry. I'm I'm just recovering from a bad cold. And the reason I'm here is one is, as a Measure you Commissioner, these workshops are very valuable for me to listen in as we're getting ready to make recommendations. And the other reason I came today um, is because I wanted to give comments about uh, an ongoing issue on Northgate. I live right off of Northgate. It's Potomac and Northgate. And a week ago, this is an ongoing problem that there's racing going on. They race down Northgate, it's a very long street, and it encourages racing. And what happened is they were racing, they lost control, and they hit a pole, and they hit the fe- two fences of fam- family homes. And these family homes, I've seen them, God, I've lived there 35 years, on average, they experience um, someone crashing into their fences are families that live there and it really upsets me to see this going on and on and on. I know we have this wonderful Northgate Mobility Study Plan but we, to implement that, that's a hundred million dollars. And what I would like to see and for all of you to direct the city staff to look at low cost, effective strategies for um, a speed-calming, uh, um, Pro, um, techniques and strategies for Northgate. We can't wait. I don't want to see, like a year ago, a grandmother killed because someone was speeding and lost control and hit her car. So what I ask is that you direct the city staff to look at effective, cost-effective, and immediate ways to implement and change driver behavior. Thank
1: you for your comments. Our next speaker is Guy Stevenson, then Mac Worthy.
19: wherever you are. I'm here because I, I noticed in a lot of this racial propaganda, that's what it is. You guys are attacking the police all the time. You're attacking the fire department all the time. Let me tell you, some of the nicest cops that I know work right here in Sacramento. I support them, as you can see. And the fire department, these people need all the support that you can give them because they work their rear ends off. I work outside of here at the medical examiner's office, and I deal with these people all the time. They are some of the most awesome people in uniform. I was in uniform for a lot of years, and I'm telling you, the fire department here, the police department here are some of the nicest people. they butt, they're getting fatigued, they're getting stressed out, you as community council people, you should support these people because they do an awesome job. And these fire department people work 24 hours and they're nonstop. First time there's an accident, the fire department shows up before the police. You know why? Because these people care about our community. They really, really, really do. And I support them and I'll keep supporting them, and you people need to support them, and I'm asking you to please support them in your next budget. I know you guys are, what, $40 million in deficit? You're gonna have to figure out how to support these wonderful people in uniform, women and men. You really do need to see that. You need to see how they're working out in the field. They're just great people. I have nothing bad to say about the fire department, and I have nothing bad to say about the police department. People that do things wrong need to take ownership for their stupidity. That's what they need to do. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Vice uh, Mac Worthy is our final speaker.
20: Good afternoon, panel. We would like to know when does the charter meet? How do we get to study that charter? There's some things going on here that I think is not the proper constitutionality, and I'm seeking those things because I think we got a guy in who will run for city council and deputy to help us get that. I'll go to some of the old private sectors. We don't want nonprofit organizations. We want young college kids that's going to school, got time to come to these meetings. How you schedule meetings that the public should know about, and relay that information back to us. Because I could talk to them on that. So we, we want to know who has the authority to say who going to run in the district. It should be the people, not the mayor. Some tricky things going on here, just like the fire department here. We got some things there that people, you got to wake up. How can we be $50 million in the hole and these guys suffer for income? Don't make sense. Where is the neighborhood association? We don't want no more non-profit We want the private sector to come in here so we can get an attorney to file a proper lawsuit here.
1: Thank you for your comments. Vice Mayor, I have no more speakers this afternoon.
7: Thank you. Um, colleagues, without objection, I'm going to suggest that we keep our council comments, ideas, and questions in AB 1234 reports for their 5 p.m. meeting. And also same with our city manager's report, given our time. And so with that, we will uh, adjourn into closed session at 4.31 p.m.